This episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. Unveiled through a made-for-TV documentary, five tales of found footage horror emerge to take viewers on a terrifying journey into the grim underbelly of the 1980s in VHS 85. Now available on DVD and Blu-ray. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. Well, beep beep, Richie, it's a special week because the Losers saw it and we're here to talk about it. And we have a special episode today. We're going to break it down into three different parts. So here's what you can expect. First, we're going to talk about the film uh, in a general sense, sort of like a review. There will be no major spoilers. We're not going to, you know, ruin anything for you guys. We promise you from the bottom of our souls that we will not spoil anything. But then for those who have seen the movie, uh, we're going to get a little bit deeper. There's going to be spoilers. We're going to talk about the differences between the book and the movie and, um, you know, our enjoyment and our concern over particular elements and things of that nature. And then we're going to move on to our interview with the IT director uh, and producer, his sister, Andy and Barbara Musietti. And we are, uh, we had a great chat with them. They're super nice, super cool. And um, it's going to be a fun time. Do you guys all agree with me that it's going to be a fun time? I wasn't here for the interview, but I'm assuming it was a good time. It was a good time. I was there for the interview. And I, my, tr- I trust both of you then. <laughs> my name is Randall Stan Uris Colburn. Mm. And sitting to my left is... I'm Justin Trashmouth Gerber. Oh, looks like you took uh, Richie Tozer, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm uh, Michael... Uh, th- 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 Michael th- Hanlon Rothman. Th- 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 <laughs> ooh, that actually would be a good one. I'm Michael Hanlon Rothman. <laughs> there goes the stuttering. Yeah, I was going to do the stuttering bills stutter since I Mike, like to uh, stutter in this podcast. I don't like, Mike. but I just do, so... So yeah, it's uh, it, these are exciting times. Uh, we're in sort of a Stephen King film renaissance right now. There's so many things happening. Uh, Gerald's Game is about to come out. We just wrote up the trailer on Consequence of Sound today, um, which is yesterday for people who are listening. But uh, and then you know we just had the Dark Tower open, which was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, but you know at the same time. Uh, still sort of crazy that it even happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then we've got several other Stephen King uh, works on the way, including, it was confirmed today, a sequel to It, the film we are discovering today, um, which doesn't come as much of a surprise because the pre-release hype has been so huge and the trailer has been viewed so many times that the movie could have been utter horseshit and it probably still would have got a sequel because <laughs> yeah. people were going to go see this movie. Luckily, I think we would all agree, the three of us, that this movie was not utter horseshit. No, not. I think we all enjoyed it. But before we get too deep into our thoughts on the film, we want to just give you guys an idea of what to expect from the movie. Um, 
And, you know, perhaps, you know, if you're coming into this and you have, you know, seen only seen the 1990 version or you've read the book, we just want to give you a sense of what to expect from the movie, um, how it's structured and what story it's telling. So unlike, I guess I'll just start and we can all kind of go around and chime in on this. But, you know, the way the 1990 miniseries in the book is set up is we see the adults um, and then they kind of retreat into their memories once they start receiving these phone calls from adult Mike Hanlon, who is saying it is back. And, you know, it's through those memories that we kind of, in, you know, witness the journey of the children and that initial, you know, confrontation with it. But the story is jumping back and forth between the adults and the children. Uh, in this version, we don't see the adults at all. This is 100 uh, percent a story about the Losers Club, the kids in that gang. Uh, Justin, what else would you add to this? That's a really good description. I mean, again, if you've seen the miniseries... Think about the first part and then take out John Ritter. I mean, that's really is that the best way to break it down. It's really just it's just the kids mm-hmm. and nothing else straight through. And for a quick early opinion, I think it, I think it does work for the film. Mike? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, as you mentioned before, I mean, it's the loss of innocence. It's this um, it's growing up. It, it, it is a coming of age film. It feels more in line with Stand By Me than it does with the actual original source material or with the miniseries. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it one of the big realizations for me was the fact that I didn't really even care so much about what was going on with Pennywise as I was just how these kids were growing up and, yeah. and how they were living in this awful town of Derry, Maine. Yeah. And, and for me, that was always my favorite part of the book. So the fact that, you know, Andy Musietti was able to kind of really drive that home is what connected with me the most. Yeah. And I'd say he spent, you know, the, the earliest parts of the film are really spent getting to know the characters. And Mm -hmm. I think that the film does a really great job of introducing us to each one in ways that are simple and straightforward and establish their archetypes within the group, but also, um, you know, they're interwoven with the horror as well. And we get to see Mike, uh, Hanlon a lot earlier than we do in previous versions. He's yeah. actually one of the first characters that we meet in it, and we actually get to see him, um, you know, living on the what is it like a ranch or a farm that he Sheep. lives on? It's like a farm outside of town. Yeah, and so and that that actually just you know, if there's one thing that's that's tough about both the book and the 1990 miniseries, it's that we really don't see any of Mike as a kid. He's no. just suddenly part of the gang. I mean, we get more in the book, obviously, and um, which is a curious choice because Mike Hanlon is such an important part right even in the miniseries he's you know an integral part of the group he kind of brings everyone together yeah yeah and the and the kid really gets you know nothing right to work with in that original miniseries and then here he gets a little bit more we get to meet him early on we get a sense of his family dynamic and he gets probably what the first sort of centerpiece aside from georgie and uh bill which we Mm -hmm. all kind of know is sort of the impetus for you know, this, this story, um, he gets kind of the first, you know, moment of true terror and kind of the first real glimpse of Pennywise outside of Georgie. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, what you touched on, Mike, this idea of dairy is a very horrible place. I think that's another thing that the movie does really well is it really establishes, um, the need for friendship and the need for community in this town because the adults, I think Justin, you described that all the adults in this version of dairy are all very grotesque. Yeah, that's the best way to put it, like picaresque. I mean, even if they don't realize it, they just, whether or not it's because they've lived in dairy their whole lives, and as you grow up, you just kind of get infested with this evil that's always been there, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, everybody seems a little more, 
in terms of makeup, they seem a little darker. Um, the hair seems a little bit bigger. Um, just the smiles don't seem as sincere. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways it captures how, as a kid, you would look at a lot of adults too, mm-hmm. you know? Well, especially us as kids. I mean, yeah. think about all the pop culture back in the 80s too. I mean, adults are pretty non-existent in a lot of these horror movies and, and films that we grew up on. And that kind of gave this sort of lingering presence of... Um, of anxiety mm-hmm. you know that that, this, yeah. that it's really on your shoulders to kind of solve whatever problem this was i mean like think of all the all kitted ensembles that a lot of movies are kind of capitalizing on now like you, know, you look at the goonies like i thought of the goonies a lot during this movie and i don't even think you really see the parents of the goonies until like the very end or no you see in the beginning i no, guess you see in the beginning, but like yeah. because they you have to set up the fact that, that they're all losing their house and everything but but they go but off they're, on their yeah, own. but they're on they're, and they're, once gone, they're on their own they're on their own they're on their own and and i and i love that in this movie um because that's that makes not only just the story a little bit more compelling um for the kids but it also just really embellishes the qualities of the kids like you know how are they going to overcome these problems and the fact that they aren't just non-existent these adults there are a threat um from even somebody that's supposed to be you know a nice person like the the pharmacist yeah is probably still the, is a bit of a creepy bent to him a total creepy yeah. bent to him yeah um <laughs> no spoilers you know <laughs> you know but um, that part of, I really loved, I, I think about that. What was the, another horror movie I really loved the gate. Um, and, uh, and how that film, there are no parents whatsoever. And it's really just on the kids to figure out why are these demons coming into the house? And as a kid that always scared me because, you know, the, the, first off the whole house is being destroyed. And for me, that was always gave me anxiety, but the idea that you couldn't turn to anyone mm-hmm. is also really scary. Mm-hmm. And that makes this that much scarier also. I mean, even without Pennywise, like, I mean, obviously they can't turn to their parents about Pennywise, but they also can't even turn to their parents about being bullied. I mean, there's that, there's a great scene that they, they show this in the trailer and yeah. it's in the book, you know, like Ben is being like uh, assaulted by like Patrick Hockstetter and his gang and, and, and whatnot. And, and Henry and Henry, Henry Bowers. And, and like, like carving his chest and like nobody does anything when the car drives by yeah, they you don't see anything by. and that is a menacing quality to this movie it is and it's and chilling yeah and i think it establish it helps establish early on that the children are really the focus here and that's really played up just through we hear a lot about the missing children that have you know the kids who have already gone missing um in the wake of georgie and how georgie's body has never been found yeah. and things like that and i'd say that you know they even established the you know, the sense that the kids are on their own just in the sort of early scene with Georgie and Bill, because Georgie really talks to Bill like he is not just an older brother, but a mentor and a father figure. And then we don't see uh, their father at all during that early scene, but we see their mom and she's just playing piano and she's distant and she's not paying attention. And then when Georgie goes and he's racing the boat down the street, you know, once he encounters Pennywise in the sewer, there's, there's an older woman who comes out and we see her talking like that we see her see georgie talking into the sewer and she ignores it she ignores what's going on and then later she sees that you know not all is well and she continues to ignore it like she knows something is wrong and i think that helps establish sort of you know the fact that these kids are really on their own and that the adults are not to be trusted and i think it's it was through very simple efficient graceful filmmaking that those themes were set up i almost feel like that was kind of a commentary on parenting in the 80s sure um you know i maybe it's just our upbringing and that's what we know best mm-hmm. but um y- you know th- there 
there's been a lot of talk of lately about how parents have become such helicopter parents mm-hmm. um, in this new millennium and how, you know, kids can't be left to their own devices. They have to, you know, they have to be watched. There's something's going to happen. You know, all, parents are so worried about things, even from like before childbirth. They like there's they won't drink wine. They won't do this. That They won't do that. And and it's a big debate right now with with, with parents, actually. And um in the 80s, I don't think there was a lot of that. You know, I know <laughs> no. there, there wasn't. And like, and I think there was, you know, there were a lot of latchkey kids. A lot of, I mean, divorce was becoming more prevalent. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know just seeing that growing up, the 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 idea that parents are just going to, you know, if somebody saw Georgie, you know, in the movie, we see the, the older woman see Georgie just talking into the sewer. I felt that that was almost like Andy's way of saying, um, hey, remember when parents would actually just kind of let they, there was this trust that kids are going to be on their own. They're going to mm-hmm. do this thing. They're going to have this imagination. Whereas like nowadays, everyone would run out going, what, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to you're going to fall. Well, there's the also this the... sense of stranger danger, too. Yes. Which was yeah. big in the 80s. And oh, I think there totally was. Yeah. And I think there was the sense that that was when the creeping anxiety was coming into parents. If I do let my kid just run around, something will get them. Yeah. You know, and it was like that paper boy who got kidnapped, like Johnny, whatever his name was in the 80s, um, who got, you know, literally put into a child sex smuggling ring, yeah. you know, it's like, there's something it, mm. that was something that was really pervading that time. And I think that brings us to another key um, aspect of this adaptation, which is that the first part doesn't take place in the fifties. Like it does in the mm-hmm. book and in the miniseries, it takes place in 1988, um, which is, you know, when the director, Andy Muschietti was at uh, the same age as these kids. Almost and, the same. It was like around like 13. Yeah. He might've 14. been a little bit yeah. older. Yeah. And so it, it touches, although I'll say I this, the though, kids are supposed to be 13. In the, the kids. Movie. Oh, really? The yeah. kids actually. Yeah. Because when there's a scene with Richie where it's confirmed that he's 13 Oh, okay. and they were a little, they felt a little bit older than they have in the, than they, I don't remember what age they are in the book, but in the miniseries, it felt like they were maybe 11 or 12. And here it said that they, you know, it was implied that they were all 13 and especially Bev felt a little bit older than every, than the others. And, you know, and Henry Bowers and his friends are driving around. So I felt like everybody was maybe one or two years older than they were in the book, which I think worked. And, um, but I think that, you know, what you were just touching on, Mike, was a good example of, uh, how the time period has been updated. And with that up updated time period, we see some changes in character, like, you know, when I I think of Eddie Kasbrack, right? And I don't remember how he is in the book if he, because I haven't read the book in a while, but does, uh, in the 90s uh, miniseries, he's like a little old man. Like he's like a little boy, but he's also a little old man. And he's very polite and he doesn't swear and he doesn't do anything. And then, well, he's, he's a great character. He's really yeah. adorable, but he's like a, an old man. Whereas here, um, you know, Eddie has this really repressive mother and we kind of see him he's still a hypochondriac and totally afraid of, you know, germs and sickness. But, and he talks about AIDS all the time, which I think is a yeah. great eighties, like, cause everybody was afraid of AIDS then. Mm-hmm. But he also is like a total potty mouth. Like, well, he feels an, like an extension of Richie, which yeah. I felt was a very natural element of this friends group. Yeah. Because I mean, look, we all hang out all the time. I mean, I'm very chameleonic, like in a way where I will see things like I, sometimes I've absorbed laughs that mm-hmm. my friends have done or like, you know, maybe that, like there's a style that Justin always does with like telling jokes. And I've found myself doing those type of beats of jokes also. Like something and, that I'll say usually is really, really, really funny. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, you know, like I've, I've said like, Hey, spoiler alert or guess what? Doesn't matter. Like, and oh, those yeah. are your things. And like, but that's, that's such a, that's sort of 
association that you get with friends mm-hmm. and how it bleeds into one or another. I thought I love that about this movie because it, it like I agree because Eddie really is. I, I mean, I just read it last year. Yeah. Um, and my the pages of my book are all littered out throughout Europe right now. But um, as I ripped them out of my 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 book and I just kept uh, why the, because I didn't want to carry this huge book around. <laughs> And, if anybody out there in Europe finds yeah. Mike's page, finds me random, <laughs> finds like page seven sixty three of it, please let us know. Hey, it would be in uh, London, Manchester, Edinburgh, um, back to London. Mm. Oh, and then weeks before that, I was in uh, Park City, Utah. So, and you were there with were me. Were you so, littering, or were you putting? Uh, in I was throwing cans. them in garbage cans. Okay. So they're in the you know garbage dump somewhere. Pennywise is all across. Oh but boy. Anyway, I do remember Eddie being. This, like you had just said, he was like a very old man. Yeah, he's, he's very like reserved to himself. And there are a little more archetypal like well, that's, characters. And that's the difference between the 50s and the 80s. Yeah. Like kids in the 80s swore a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a dirtier time. Oh, totally. And, uh, that's... Well, even in the book, Jeez and Crow is the expression. Yeah. Even when they were around the, just each other. So, yeah. And I kind of love that. Like, I, I feel like I, I made a joke on Twitter just last night. Just like the R rating for it was essential just so we could hear Richie Tozer talk about his dick constantly. Yeah. Like, And it was hilarious. Like, they talk like actual kids of mm-hmm. that time. They swear they're, all of them swear, except for Bill probably. And like, um, you know, Bev, I actually think is probably the most well-developed character in that you know she's not so much a tomboy as she's kind of described in previous you know versions she's kind of slut shame like the girls think she's a slut and they think that and she smokes in the bathroom and she's kind of a rebel but she's also not a cool rebel yeah and um but she's also a lot bossier and a lot more you know um straightforward than she is in the books in the uh, miniseries i think she kind and we when we talked to andy which you'll hear later he talked about how, in some ways, Bev was took over a lot of Bill's roles. Like some of his more proactive mm-hmm. uh, elements, like were transferred over to Bev, which I think was really effective. Yeah. So yeah, I think that, and then also I think especially though with Richie, like when you watch the miniseries version, that sort of fifties, like Seth Green playing him, doing like talk show host yeah. voices. It's 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 funny to a degree, but it's also kind of grating and kind of annoying. Whereas with this Richie, you know, even though he's making a lot of the same jokes about how he's got a huge dick and he has sex all the time, that's hilarious to me because I literally I was that kid, yeah. like to a degree when I was younger. Oh god, and I, like, I mean, I used to say fuck all the time yeah. in like six or seven times in sentences. I mean, I still do, but I remember even a parent had to like pull me aside and be like, you know what? You don't, I don't want you telling this language next to my kid or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, no, I won't. Don't worry. And then we'd leave and it'd be like, fuck that guy. And then like my, yeah. my, my friends would be like, that's my dad or whatever, you know, but <laughs> we were just brats as a kid. I mean, they're, you're awful as, as kids, like yeah. pretty much awful human beings as kids. Cause you're learning how to be a human being. And, and, and I thought that seeing like Finn Wolfhard as Richie, and using language and expletives in such a way that was so like it was like almost like freebasing uh yeah. like uh like curse words it was it's hilarious i mean it, it's it's very repetitive and i'm sure people would be like oh it looks like they're just using the f word as much as possible because they're rated exactly and that's and that's I and you know. can totally see why adults would hate these kids but yeah. at the same time through the lens that we're viewing them they are all so like sympathetic and funny and charming and i think that's the thing to really emphasize here is that this movie is really funny. Yeah. Like, and I, I think that's really due it's to like the cracking cast. up. Yeah. Like the direction is great and the script is solid, but a lot of it is due to their performers. Um, who, what's the name of the guy who plays Ben? We were, Oh, I love Jeremy, Jeremy Ray, Ray Taylor, Taylor is amazing. Jeremy was... Ray Taylor plays Ben and he 
can do so much with so little, like yeah. without even lines. And like the first time we meet him, he's holding like a big science project diorama or something. And then he's talking to Bev and he's trying to carry it on his bike. It's and like it's, a very Chris Farley. Yeah. Like, and it's so funny and it's so charming. And I feel like, um, yeah, we just we the kids all have they all exude so much personality. Even Stan Uris, who is sort of the kid who you know, it's funny because I remember watching it with my I was watching the nineties miniseries with my wife recently and she was she kept being like, Who's that kid? Who's that kid? You know? He's the Boy Scout. Because in the nineties version he's always in a Boy Scout yeah, uniform. Yeah. And I think the thing with Richie, I mean with uh, Stan is like, you know, in the book I mean, he has more, there's always more to him. And the thing is, Stan is actually kind of a key character, but it's so easy to boil him down just to the idea of him being either Jewish or in the 90s miniseries of Boy Scout. But I think the actor who <laughs> plays him here, who actually played young, uh, I'll keep it rolling. Let's keep okay. it going. Right. It's natural. The actor who plays him here played young, uh, Peter Quill in uh guardians of the galaxy oh interesting and he's really good like i really like that kid and he's got some great emotional moments but i feel like uh all of these kids you know really bring a certain personality that you know helps fill in the gaps where the script maybe fails the characters because the script i think you know is is, is good but i think so much of the personality really comes from the actors than it does from the script would you say that the stanley character in the movie kind of adapted some of we were talking about earlier some of eddie's attitudes yeah. from the book yeah. in terms of it, the old man type yep. of it uh, mm-hmm. yeah he's attitude. definitely yeah. the more like like when all the kids drop their bikes when they're gonna run over to somewhere uh stan is the only one who not puts his kickstand out so it doesn't fall over well, in the street. it plays to his narrative i mean he's becoming a man you know he's having his bar mitzvah um, yeah and I, I i like that uh, I do. I do feel like out of the seven, he's a little underwritten. Um, but, well, he's always been, underwritten. and he's always been. Yeah, and him that's and Mike. Thing. Yeah, because he's more of like. I mean, as you're going to find out, he's he's more of like almost like a MacGuffin itself. Yeah. Um, so, I, I did like his character. I mean, he has the best scares. Yeah, uh, his his character has this easily the most terrifying fear. Yeah. of all mm-hmm. of them. And we'll we'll get there. One last thing I want to talk about mm-hmm. within the world is the way Derry is painted and the way sort of Andy uh, Musietti like creates the world. I felt like there was sort of this relentless ominousness, this relentless sense of dread that was there in the movie. And it wasn't just because um, I think a lot of the movie, and this is both a good thing and I think a touch of criticism is that it starts to feel like a series of set pieces after a while. Cause you know, and that's how the book is to a degree. And that's mm-hmm. how, cause we have to see each kid encounter it in some way. So it is a series of set pieces, but what I love is that, uh, Musietti like, um, fills in the gaps with, uh, really creepy little moments. Like there's this children's show that everyone's watching whenever a TV is on in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's this woman with a bunch of kids. It's a very Sesame street type it's like a show. public access show. And yeah. And if you mm-hmm. listen like to the, the dialogue it's playing in the background, the woman is always saying creepy shit. Yeah. And, but she's saying it in a really upbeat voice. She's talking about sewers. She's talking about clowns. Like, and it's so freaky yeah. because it's played straight faced we're not we see the screen eventually but we don't see it in the early going we just hear it in the background and like characters don't acknowledge it it's just literally this thing that's playing in the background and that to me was an example of how dairy was was painted as a very scary place yeah and um and also just the general sense of grayness and the general sense of like disrepair that the town looked like you know it looks like a beaten down suburb yeah. i mean it looks like the type of town that you forget about and you only stop that because you need to, you know, get, get gas, gas yeah. or you need a snack or something like mm-hmm. that. Or you've, 
you know, you're not going to go there to stay for lunch. You're going to just keep going. And, you know, that's reflected on everything from their houses to yeah. even the, the kind of, there's like a rundown quality to the, um, the town too. I mean, like you look in the alleys that they, they stand in, they're very old. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these buildings have just never been updated and yeah. renovated. And, um, you know, the movie house is, is, it's a very small little movie. House. I mean, granted it's the eighties, but, um, you know, I, I, the sense of places that we're going to be talking about this, like for a bunch probably in this, yeah. in, in this podcast. I mean, I think it's I, one of the strongest, strongest parts. Yeah, yeah. Easily. I think we'd all agree that the strongest parts of this film adaptation are the kids themselves because they're cast so well mm-hmm. and they're directed so well. And they're, the general sense of camaraderie is very believable yeah. and very sweet and also very, you know, touching and just and nostalgic in a lot of ways. But then also the town itself feels very authentic. Oh, totally. And it feels very, I don't know, it's a place that I really recognize and a place that also gave me a lot of uh, chills, as mm-hmm. they say. Spills anthros. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the defining areas of the town from the book, because that's just, I mean, hey, what, what can I say? Derry is a character. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like it, the eighth loser. I, I would say it is like the eighth loser. Um, well, speaking of the eighth loser, let's talk about Pennywise a little bit. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think justice? so far, I think we've been very complimentary about yeah. the film up to this point. Wait, why are you taking a knife out? <laughs> Just start stabbing myself. Yeah. Um, I think Bill Skarsgård does a good job. Yeah. I, I, look, any problems I have with Pennywise really don't have to do with him. This is where I feel the direction suffers a little bit. Randall, we talked about this last night. Yeah. Some of these quote-unquote scares linger too long. Mm-hmm. The cutaways don't happen quick enough. And I think when that happens, the fright factor starts to dwindle a little bit. And I think there were sequences where we got way too much Pennywise. Mm-hmm. I think about books where you'd only see him in the corner waving. And then you wouldn't see him again for 50, 60 pages. I think even about the miniseries when you would just see Tim Curry across the swamp waving. And that's it. Yeah. But there were just extended bits that kind of diminished his power a little bit. And ultimately, I, yeah. I feel... Pennywise is, you know, ultimately one of the weakest parts of the movie for me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think it is the weakest part of the movie. And uh, but the parts that do work with him really do work. And I, again, and I, and I wrote this in my review, and I think I've, I can't, I can't remember if I actually already stated it on here. But um, I don't think that he's the most important part of this. No, of this movie definitely like, not. And, but I do think that they, they could have made him just as not just as important but a very vital presence um because i i do feel like his presence is is works in this film but when he does appear it's kind of like he's he's less scary <laughs> like i'm actually like more scared when he's not there than when he actually is there which is yeah. kind of a problem um you know there are flashes of of genius and a lot of it ties into what you said where you can just you Skarsgård is just allowed to act and he could just be there in that moment as opposed to you know him standing there but also in the guise of like a green screen because he's about to fucking move at nine thousand miles per hour towards the kids something else i didn't necessarily like i'll also say kind of off of that mike is my favorite parts of skarsgård were i mean listen the character pennywise is is putting on a show for these kids yeah he doesn't want you to be afraid of him but there were moments when he would all of a sudden kind of just stop talking the kids would be laughing and he would just kind of lean back yeah and look Yeah, and that those parts where you see him kind of going into himself 
were the most disturbing to me. Well, he would like drop his jaw. Yeah, and he yeah. Just kind of just stare, and like those eyes just. Kind I of agree. Stare. I think kind of, like just stare off into the distance. Yeah. Like, let's take a moment to just talk about his performance a little bit. Yeah, because yeah. I think that he does like the voice he uses. It's the, he has sort of a tiny lisp, and there's sort of like a trying to think of the right word for this there's something almost cartoonish about his voice there's something kind of muppetish about mm-hmm. his voice and he's got these lips that i feel like he uses to great effect uh the words all sound very crisp um well i, I said he has a lisp but then they're crisp but it's like at the same time there is this sort forth. of weird there's a sort of weird uh cadence that he has to his voice that i found very unsettling because it's very unnatural and he's speaking like a clown would speak to a child totally. you know and but the thing is we're adults we don't see that anymore we just do it like i find myself talking like ch- like to children that way not the not in the okay. you know not yeah. as creepy as pennywise well, randall's actually, sewer to be fair <laughs> randall's an ice cream uh, truck driver on the side <laughs> Um, Mr. Mercedes. But it's like, you know, you have this sort of like weird affected delivery that you do with kids. But then like Justin said, there'll be like he'll like the scene with Georgie. A lot of you have probably seen it because um, it's that scene has been online. It was shown before some movies. And there's a moment when Pennywise goes from laughing and joking with Georgie and just like a like some drool falls from his mouth. It drops open a little bit, and his eyes—they literally just go fucking dead. Yeah, and that's for me. Yeah, that's what I was referring. Yeah, to. and like that happens a couple times throughout the movie. Where it's almost he like goes, shark-like. Yeah, like he goes from these moments of uh, playfulness and goofiness and silliness to complete and utter deadness, and that's what I think wasn't like with Tim Curry. And Tim Curry's amazing, and no shade, but it's just like he went from goofy and silly to monstrous and scary. What I love is that there's this third element with Bill Skarsgård's take where he goes from goofy and silly and he, he also goes to, to frightening and, you know, he's in your face and he's got his and we, we I'm not going to we're not going to spoil it. But there's kind of a, a certain way that he attacks people that is neat and new to this. And uh, but it's that it's that other emotion. It's that moment where the true evil that lives inside of it kind of surfaces and it kills every it's the deadlights, you Mm -hmm. know, like we're not literally, but the feeling of what the deadlights are, the things that kind of kill everything that's inside of you. And all that's left is this sort of pure you know, undistilled terror. And that to me is the real shining light of his performance that, and also I'd say, and we've discussed this a bit, but his movements I think are very practiced and very interesting and very clown. Like I describe them as marionette. Like he, he struck me in several scenes as moving like a puppet. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I again, it, if he was just allowed to be, <laughs> there yeah that's as opposed to this kind of spectacle well he was given too many lines well he would definitely was given too many lines th- and 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 I'm, i was actually shocked by that i because was too i thought that that was what by not having too many lines he would be less like tim curry and mm-hmm. they would remove himself right. a little bit um because i mean that's the thing I've, I've never really been scared by pennywise from this book i've always mm-hmm. been more terrified about what he's capable of doing behind the scenes and being able to kind of bring about your own fears, yeah. Um, which this film does really good, yes. Uh, at I mean, like you know, which this film does really well. Um, I'm an editor here. Are you serious? Um, yeah, no. Um, but this film does really well. Um, this is all staying. Correcting you know, your grammar. Yeah, yeah, I am correcting my grammar. But 
what this film really does well is is showing his reach. Yeah. And you know when we see just how he's able to kind of yank the fear out of all these kids in certain scenes early on. I mean, I I've seen a, a shitload of horror movies in theaters over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've been like, eh, whatever. Yeah. This like just i mean there's a sequence that involves uh you know stan mm-hmm. and uh when he's when he's at um um temple that i i was frozen i felt like i had been watching the deadlights actually yeah. uh you know looking at the deadlights and 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 that to me was like that's where i realized oh that is kind of like the book like that is where the fear is coming in and i don't know if scars guard really needs to be scary because right. to to me the another then i'll start going off on a rant here but the the problem with I've always had with it is that it the idea of a, a scary clown isn't scary anymore because right. it's become ubiquitous in mainstream culture. It's like it's like the creepy kid thing, which like, they sort of comment on within this movie. Yeah, yeah, I but mean, not no. I'm not saying not in a way that you know negates what you're saying. No, no, you're 100% no. Hundred percent right. Yeah, because I mean, like, how do you make scary clown scary again? You right. Know? Like you can't. Really. Right. It's hard. Um. So that that's why I I kind of give credit. To Scar to Scarsguard, regardless, because he did actually when he is just there doing his things, he is pretty f- terrifying. Because I'm not really seeing a clown anymore; I'm actually seeing like a psychopath. Right, and mm. so I guess, and I totally agree with you. And I wish that Scarsguard was had you know just like you're saying, like less opportunities to be scary. Rather, just yeah. I want to see him pulling the strings. And existing sort of in the wake of the scares, which mm-hmm. we do see a few times. Yeah, oh, totally. That sense of like the kids encounter something horrific, and then once the nightmare is over, Pennywise is in sort of the haze of drifting back into mm-hmm. reality. And so, and I'll say one last thing just about like about the horror, and I guess just to clarify, it is a lot like the book and a lot like the miniseries in that each kid sort of encounters the one thing that really scares them. The Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it manifests in some way. And I'll say that it's definitely an improvement over the miniseries for me because I think back on how, you know... What 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 attacks Richie in the miniseries is a wolf. It's a wolfman because they just saw a horror movie with the wolfman in it. Mm-hmm. But that's like, well, that's not Richie's thing he's most scared of. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I love is like what they do in this movie is a character walks by it, has to walk by a painting every day. And that painting is horrifying, but they have to walk by it every day. And they cover their eyes when they walk by it. And then that painting actually coming to life and coming after them that to me is so scary because yes. it's not just, you know, going to see a movie once and then it coming after you or whatever. It's that thing that every day you have to face and every day nothing ever happens. And then one day something happens. Yeah. And that's like, to me, the way that this movie really captures that sense of the horrific and the terror and capitalizing on that worst fear. I, I think this kind of goes way back to what Mike was saying earlier about Mike, you don't really find Pennywise that. Because I think you read it recently, right? I did, yeah. The first time. Um, but for me, I I think it's crucial for it to work as an adaptation. You have to embrace the, the evils of dairy. Yeah. Okay, you do. And I think you also have to really capture those kids. Because if those kids don't work, forget it. But I, I did, and I still do find Pennywise to be a terrifying character. So I think this is where we get off a little bit. So I think the two of you enjoy a little bit more than I did. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because you weren't so worried about Pennywise being really, really effective. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to speak words for you. But no, no, that's um, right. Yeah. But for me, I was expecting a more terrifying performance that we kind of got hinted at in the trailer and in earlier scenes. Mm-hmm. And that dwindled away. It kind of became 
it's funny, it kind of became a poster that we see in the movie for Nightmare 5, The Dream Child, <laughs> in which he kind of just becomes like Freddy Krueger, yeah. like yeah. overload. Well, that, of, you think, know, and I think, yeah. so for me, that was a disappointment. I think that's the best way I can put it. And that's, to me, I think part of him talking too much. The mis- yeah. It's like Freddy started talking too much in the movies, you know? It's, and I think the real problem with Pennywise was that he, he was talking, he wasn't just saying scary things. He started explaining his own <laughs> mythos a couple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to a degree. He was getting Bond villain. Yeah, like not, not to a degree where it was, where it was, you know, really bad to the point where it ruined the character for me because it didn't because I ultimately did enjoy the character. But I just kept thinking in my head, I'm like, stop talking. Stop explaining what you're doing. Like, we understand. We don't need you to tell us that what you're doing is feeding off fear. You know what I mean? I think a lot of that for me also would go back. I mean, I read it when I was really young after I'd seen the miniseries. And so this is over 25 years ago. So I think I'm also coming out from a totally different point of view. If I just read this recently as an adult, these things wouldn't necessarily be as, as frightening to me, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think because of where I was coming from, that's just that memory of, of even just Tim Curry and the clown suit stuck with me for so many years. Where I think that's what it, all, it just all comes from where you were coming from as you as you go see this movie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like for a like a thirteen year old to come see this, you know, for the first time. He might yeah think it's ridiculous, or he might think it's terrifying. Who knows? Well, my, my problem with uh, with Pennywise was, you know, I grew up worshiping uh, John Wayne Gacy. So yeah, I, I, I just was like, God, this guy is such a cool person. He's yeah. a hero. I, Wait, just, what the fuck? No, I'm just joking. That's not true. But <laughs> I, um, I'm over here like, yes, Anne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Um, I, I guess my thing is, I, I mean, I did see it late. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't watch it until uh, my honeymoon, um, <laughs> which was when I read the book. Um, Great, but <laughs> well, look, it was a long flight back home from the UK. Not that long. It's like seven hours, but I was like, you know, three hour movie. I'm going to watch it. Um, and I do wish I would have seen it as a kid. I mean, I just remember seeing ads for it and, you know, seeing the, the, the VH test, the VHS tape when it finally came yeah. to Blockbuster. But I, I guess my, my thing is I never really, the, the, the problem with, it goes into the talking thing. Like Tim Curry talking to me never is scary, but him just staring, mm. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I guess back to most of the problem or the character problem. So so if I guess if I had, you know, my brothers and I was able to be able to do whatever and have carte blanche like for this, I probably would just have it where he never talks. Yep, same. And it's just this like sort of understanding that everyone has. They go, oh my God. And it's just this menacing figure that is just in the background. And maybe if he does talk, it's almost like a Caleb Landry Jones thing where you can't <laughs> even understand him. Yeah. Mumble mouth. Like, you know, or they could take a, the ticket, you know, take a note from, uh, oh, no. Finn Wolfhard's, uh, yeah. you know, Little co-star buddy. from stranger things, Mushmouth. Um, oh, and they could have, uh, you know, had him just be like, thing that you got there. yeah. And like, that would have been actually kind of creepy. I mean, but, um, I, and I think to a degree, I'll just say, I'll just say that I actually, I do really like the voice he uses. Yeah, yeah. I think that he's touching on what you're saying and that the voice is unnatural, mm-hmm. but it's when the voice, uh, kind of veers into, it's when it starts to feel like a screenplay, like when it mm-hmm. starts to feel like scripted lines that yeah. he's saying. And there's a moment in the, the miniseries that made me cringe with how bad it was. And I had forgotten about it, but it's when Richie as an adult comes back to town and he sees Pennywise in the library and mm-hmm. Pennywise just keeps telling jokes and he's like up popping balloons and the balloons are popping and there's like blood in them and they're going on people's faces. Yeah. Like that moment's okay, but like he's he's telling all these jokes like, oh, you got Prince Albert in a can? Well, let him out, you know? And it's like, it's like shut up. It's bizarre. It's like it's not scary at no. all. Like this, this, uh, this 
evil clown telling bad jokes in a way that's really over the top and comical is not scary. And when everyone's trying to study at the library, <laughs> which is really rude, even but, though and, they can't hear him. So, and yeah. I think, you know, but I think about the scariest moments of Pennywise for me, and they are moments where he wasn't speaking. Yeah. And um, I think of, I'm not going to spoil it, but you know, when he encounters Ben, like, and uh, this incorporates a little bit of, the CGI that we're going to, the CGI is an issue we're going to discuss in just a moment. But, but I will say that, uh, that's an instance where the fear is more born out of what Ben is afraid of. And then the clown only shows up for a second. And there's that moment where it's like, it's the punctuation at the end. It's not the prolonged joke telling. Well, it's kind of like the, how you see Pennywise for the first time in the book. Yeah. When the person falls off the bridge and you see just the flash of him, like standing at the edge of yeah. the river. He looks um, up and yeah. Ugh. That's scary. Yeah. Um yeah, I agree. I mean less is more. Less is Horror, absolutely that more. is the the ultimate rule that nobody really uses anymore. Um But I think also, a, you know, less I think it's interesting to say less is more, but we are I was really happy that this movie was two hours and fifteen minutes. Like, no, no, no. I'm not talking about runtime. I know. I'm talking about um, I'm just saying that yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent on like when it comes to the actual horror. Yes. Uh, less is more, but then they actually, and what I like about it is that I felt like they used that two hours and 15 minutes to tell a good story yes, and have a really strong emotional component. But before we get to that, cause that's kind of how I want to close out the non spoiler section of this. Let's talk about sort of, I think what really bothered all of us, which was a fear that we had from watching some of the trailers that we were a little, and also, you know, um, for us who have seen Musietti's mama, which is a decent it's a it's a decent movie, but I I struggled with it because I felt it was really heavy on CGI that looked really fake, and so let's talk about CGI in this movie. Um, this again kind of goes back to what I was saying about Pennywise. I think I wasn't as excited about the movie. I was a little more apprehensive about the movie. I would say of of, of our personal mm-hmm. Losers Club. I think cautiously optimistic was the best way I, I I could put it. And my big fear, as we talked about, was the use of CGI. And for me, in this film. There would be great moments of um, Bill Skarsgård, and then it would get to the point where I was just waiting for them to drop the CGI bomb, and I feel like that happened and over several times and they over did and it. over yeah. and over again, and and it was pointless. Yeah, it was once again a case of just let this guy do this thing because it looks like this could be an incredible performance here, and we keep kind of smothering it mm-hmm. with this needless special effect here that that, that just was. That is just totally unnecessary, or you could just put a prosthetic on, you know, that type of a thing. Mm-hmm. It was the shortcuts that really bothered me when it came with the CGI in this. Mm-hmm. They were noticeable. You yeah. Know, that was the big problem. And I, don't, was, I don't mind CGI, but it was, they were so noticeable at times. Yeah, and there were a couple good moments of CGI that you know, we discussed with... Um, Spoilers later. We'll yeah, talk we'll about. talk about that later, but we'll just say with Stan's story, yes. uh, the way that his monster is rendered is fully CGI, but it fully works because of the nature and the yes. you know the kind of texture of the scare. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, and even with, Ben's uh, scare Yeah, Ben's library. scare too. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that, but that's that was even like... That it, was, wasn't, it felt like almost stop motion. Stop motion, yeah, yeah which was really cool. And mm-hmm. it, it felt fake in sort of a cool way. Yeah. yeah. But whereas once you start to see the sort of digital wizardry or whatever really happening and it happens really early on and i remember really groaning Mm -hmm. early in the film because a really pivotal moment is it's it's working on all levels and it's firing on all cylinders and it's really effective and then suddenly it's like 
And that's not Bill Skarsgård anymore. That's yeah. a computer. Yeah. And that is what bugs me. It's it's really it's like it's like for me CGI blood too. Like when you see and there is some CGI blood in this movie, and there is nothing faker in this world to me than yeah. CGI blood. Mm-hmm. It is so obvious. It is so gross. And it's the easiest thing to do. I know. Just and get it's real all blood. about not wanting to, to to make a mess. Have to clean it up to do another take. That's also that's all. That's what it's all about. Look, you know, it's millions. Ridiculous. Of, and millions of Americans donate blood every day. You're telling me you can't get some of that blood and Let's get make it out it real there. blood. I've got I'm really rare real blood. blood. I've got typo negative. Oh, nice. Oh. That's my favorite band. Also, uh, I um, get I get emails every day, and I'm like, dudes, I can't donate for another two months. Wow. I, just, I give life. blood plasma all the time so I can uh, afford my uh, horror, uh, horrendous porn addiction. So. <laughs> Are you still buying pornography? <laughs> yeah. Are we I, going to pound cake? Right well, now? I, I kind of, I, I kind of buy pornography because that's what gets me off is paying for it. I thought you oh. bought pornography. You don't actually watch it; you just buy it online. Yeah. And once you hit enter, that's the end. of I that. thought you bought it because you really care about the state of the industry. Oh, I do. Actually. <laughs> you want to support it, yeah. and make sure it thrives. Well, I'm, you I keep was, reporting you know, porn. Have I noticed? Fingers crossed, I get uh, some Pennywise porn out of this. But uh, <laughs> no. no, all right, we're going off on way too much of a. I don't know how that would even work. Okay, uh, oh, I'm God, sure it's yeah. out there though. Oh. <laughs> Actually, you, you could do a porn adaptation of the sequel, I guess. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a um, little bit too much. But yeah, so <laughs> Jesus. So I'll say that I agree with with Justin and and Mike here. It's Pennywise. Pennywise is given this sort of ability to, and we see it in the trailer when he Bill is down in the basement with Georgie and Pennywise, and Pennywise sort of runs at him really quickly. We see it in the trailer with Richie in the clown room running at him really quickly. It's an effect that I think works in tiny, tiny doses. And we mm-hmm. see that, like I mentioned with uh, Ben, there we get sort of a split second of Pennywise. Yeah. That's super, to me, really effective because, and also in that moment, it felt like I was staring into the deadlights, not into yeah. the, um, not into uh, Bill Skarsgård, you know? Whereas, like Justin said, earlier you were like, some of the scares linger too long. And that's when I think the it's when it lingers long enough to notice the CGI, when it lingers long enough to see the computer at work, that's when it really takes away from yeah. the horror. And I'll, I'll say that overall, um, there wasn't enough of it to derail me from enjoying no, it. No. I think that it was used, I wouldn't say sparingly, I'd say it's used somewhat liberally, but at the same time, I never felt like it dominated and it also was used very well. In certain instances. Well, there's peaks and valleys. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, not to spoil too much, but like, you know, the whole Nybel, uh house scene. Yep. Um, you know, I, I just, there were parts of that where I just sort of, I mean, I, I wrote in the review, I was like, you know, getting fatigued during that scene. Yep. I was too. Because it was just like, you're assaulted by all this, these CGI thrills. And then all of a sudden it stops. Yeah. And then, you know, it peaks again later on. But, you know, in those moments where it's not doing that, it's so effective. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, again, the, the only, I mean, we're going to sound like we're uh, a broken record, but it's less is more. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. But I understand why you can't just have Bill Skarsgård run at the camera. Yeah, I don't either. You remind me, it reminded me of the old Back to the Future ride. When you'd be on the ride, you're looking at a screen and then there's Biff on the screen right in front of you. And then there's a screen behind him because it's, it's blue screened and he's, and it's like, you're going through Hill Valley. There's like like five different things going on. I'm mm-hmm. like focusing on like what's this weird thing happening in the background? Oh, here comes the clown rushing at me. Like just, just but these keep are, it simple. Oh, are you talking about in the ride when you actually have the little TV screen in the car with you? Yeah, yeah. And you, oh, I agree. <laughs> looking at no, no, no. Like he's I, like there and he's on the car with you, and then he's gone. Like, ugh, I am such a Back to the Future nerd. It's my favorite movie yeah. that I would re-ride the ride and just watch that little TV. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'd get the full effect. Oh, man. Yeah, and that line was really long, too. So just, you know, I, well, am, I am a real loser. <laughs> hey, less is more. Less is more. <laughs> but I'll just say that uh, those techniques, that idea of the clown running at the screen, the unnatural movement, that was that's really still the dregs and the residue of the mainstream horror movement that came out of Saw and came out of Insidious, where um, those sorts of effects were used to help, you know, heighten the eccentricity and the excitement of it, where, you know, especially in Insidious, which is a movie that <laughs> I will rail against <laughs> for the rest of my life. I think that movie really poisoned the mainstream horror community because it used so so many stupid horror for horror sake uh, kind oh. of effects that to me are only scary because they're telegraphing that they're scary. And I'm still seeing residue of those kind of tricks being used. And I, that's why I struggled with Mama because I felt like Mama was trying to be like Insidious. Yeah. And I, I felt it was better than Insidious um, if or only Jessica Chastain was really good in it. But um, it but, you know, but I think that those kind of effects to me. And there's a couple other sort of zombie, well, we'll just say zombie mm -hmm. in quotes, not to spoil anything, effects that to me are very like 2010 horror. Yeah. Where it's like, what are you doing? Like, this is not. Well, it takes you out of it. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to just be horror. It's anything. Yeah. I mean, action movies are the same way. Like when right. I, you know, when I think back to my earliest instance of me realizing how bad CGI um, action was was with like Blade Two or Matrix, uh, you know Matrix mm -hmm. Reloaded. You know, here's a movie, especially the Matrix, that pioneered this amazing technology and made the action feel so real and 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 unbelievable. And it was a spectacle. And then the second one, they just got lazy and just everyone's contorting really weird and they look like. And I always use this PlayStation Two FMV sequences <laughs> where they just don't look like real. It doesn't look like reality. It's not mm -hmm. even Uncanny Valley. It's just no. Exactly. That is, it's, not reality. This is not reality. This is not reality. <laughs> and and there's moment. The sad thing is, <laughs> there it is. There's not yeah. enough. There's not enough to hinder my experience, but there is enough of them in it yeah. to at least knock it down a part of a letter grade. Yeah, I mean, look, if they had they nailed that, we'd be talking about an A yeah, minus or an A. Who knows? Who knows? But for me, in yeah. terms of talking about an aspect of the movie that I think deserves an A, is the emotional um, totally. portion of it is um, the characters. I really believe all these relationships and I'm genuinely moved by all these relationships. Maybe not all. I say all. I still think that I could say, I wish I, we saw Mike interwoven more. Mm -hmm. I wish we saw Stan interwoven just a little yeah. bit more, yeah. but I'd say that, um, the relationship between Bill and Beverly, the relationship between, uh, Beverly and Ben and the relationship between Eddie and Richie and even Eddie and Bill uh, and Richie and Bill too. That's the, that yeah. relationship is really strong. I think those are all really strong relationships that I fully believe in. And, you know, in the final moments of it, when, you know, the, you know, when uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this without spoiling anything, but just sort of when they're all together and they're all sort of like asking what's next is I found that to be a supremely satisfying and emotional scene where I really felt the weight of the best summer of the best and worst summer of my life ending. Yes. You know what I no, mean? Yeah. I, I when the movie was over with like all I could think of was that line in Titanic when the uh, the guy who built the Titanic or created the Titanic looks at Rose and goes, "I wish I built you a stronger boat, Rose." Oh, because I kept thinking, I wish that there had been a stronger horror film for these kids. <laughs> Honestly, I, that was my thing because these kids, I can't get enough, I can't say enough about this, about these kids is that so many times in horror movies, we concern ourselves with, I write about this in our feature that you'll be reading soon, hopefully, 
about like the monster on the poster and that all care goes into that monster and the, the, the kids or the teens or whoever are just there for fodder. They're there for the monster to act out on. And that's where we get our kicks. But this movie, it's all about the kids and they absolutely nail the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all seven of them. I know you can't give, it's, it's tough even this type of a movie, even though it's two hours and 15 minutes to give equal time to all seven right, kids, right. especially because a lot of the time those kids are together. Mm-hmm. And so if you really give equal time, then it really starts to take away from certain relationships that are developing. Mm-hmm. But this is a, this is a unique case for me where I, I, I could still recommend the movie. I could recommend this horror film that I did not find frightening mm-hmm. because I got so much out of the kids. Yes. And I think this kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier, Mike, about the whole stand by me aspect of it. And I cannot remember the last time I've seen a group of seven kids, seven. Uh, an ensemble, seven kids. That's a Christ lot. This, is, this isn't four. This is no. seven. And, and, and the fact that we're only just complaining minor bits about it is pretty, yeah. you know, exceptional. Um, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, it's, I was just kind of in awe that they were able to pull this casting off. It's been, it's been a long time. Look, this is how I'll say it. Yeah. Stranger Things has had eight episodes, I believe, yeah. to develop all four of the kids because you had, um, yeah, you had pretty much like four because then Will was not there. Mm-hmm. So, and I felt like I knew these kids, these these seven kids in this two hour, 15 minute yeah. movie better than any of the kids from Stranger 100%. Things. 100%. That's a good I agree. point. I agree. 100%. Well, on that note, I think we should go around and give some Pennywise clown noses. Oh, are you sure? I mean, these are the most apt Pennywise clown noses of all because it's about Pennywise. And we'll go, we're about to go more in depth about yeah, yeah. Know, certain feelings we, we were holding back. Yeah. yeah. We're about to go into the sewer. Yeah, yeah we're going to go into the sewer. Uh, but first, we just want to give you guys a rating. Um, you know, if you're still not sold on whether or not you want to see it, maybe these Pennywise red, bright, shiny clown noses will change your mind. I'm going to start. I'm going to give this movie four bright red Pennywise clown noses. I think it is Definitely not perfect. Uh, I think that some of the technical effects take away from the horror. Uh, Pennywise is too is trying too hard. I'll say that much. But overall, I think it has a really strong emotional component. There were several scenes that I found genuinely frightening. Um, I was really freaked out. I felt like I felt like. Maybe the film could have been 10 minutes shorter, even though I like that it was longer. I still felt like there, I did reach a point, uh, you know, where I felt like I was watching a series of horror set pieces and I needed a little bit more to tie it all together. But in terms of being a really solid mainstream horror movie, you really can't ask for much more. Mm-hmm. Like this is a really excellent uh, film that we got out of a major studio from a big director and it's awesome and I hope that it really influences horror movies uh, but I also hope that they're moving out of this shitty CGI but mm-hmm. at the same time great cast uh, great direction really really strong uh, central story and central hook and everything so yeah for Bright Red Pennywise Clown Noses Justo um, I agree with everything you said about the emotional com- the emotional um, nature being there because again the movie doesn't work without it um, I, I don't know if I'm there with you on the direction I do feel like there are times where Muschietti lingered too long should have cut away I think the the, light, the cinematography was fantastic mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I don't have his name but it's actually we talked about this months ago when we were announcing like the casting crew it's somebody who worked with Chanwick Park yeah. for years so this is the person that did Old Boy and Chung Hoon recently Chung Hoon Chung yeah Chung yeah. Hoon Chung so and it, after watching I thought oh that resembles that type of a film that that look of a film um 
two hours, 15 minutes. I didn't have any problem really with the runtime. I, I actually felt that a lot of it was rushed in ways. Yeah, there were definitely um, scenes that felt rushed. Which, which was strange. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing to say. It's It feels too rushed, yet it's two hours, 15 minutes. and I don't, There's so much to do. There's yeah. a lot to do. I feel like they could have maybe even cut a, a few more things just to tighten it up a little bit. Um, end of the day, I would say, come for the horror, but stay around for the kids. Yeah. And I'll give it three bright red Pennywise clown noses. Michael. I'm uh, with you. I've uh, got four bright red Pennywise clown noses lined up on my table one by one. Come on down. Go get one. They all you know, it's as like uh, Walgreens. If you buy something, they'll give you one of those uh, clown red. Beep, right, beep, no, Mikey. Those clown red noses. Those red clown noses. Um, <laughs> you know, you know I, I've said it. I mean, we've pretty much said this already but yeah love the kids what can i say uh no they, no they're great um you know my, my thing is with this film and i almost wrote this in my review uh I th- i'm trying to think if this was before or after i fell asleep on my my uh, my laptop but i wanted to say that what i love about this film is that it actually proves that stephen king just isn't always about horror yeah and that this this film is a quintessential Stephen King adaptation. It feels like a Stephen King book mm-hmm. when you're watching this. And that is so hard to nail. And I don't think since early Darabont have we really seen that um, in a long time. Um, you know, and that's that's really special. Mm-hmm. And especially for us that's been worried for so long that we're not going to see that sort of magic come back. I mean, we, we just did that whole list of all the Stephen King adaptations from starting with like De Palma's Carrie and going on to yeah. Andy Musietti's It. And, you know, we, we've watched a lot in these last few weeks. And yes, one of the things have. that we've watched <laughs> way too many, and I've seen way too many adaptations, <laughs> but what I've noticed is that the quality and the magic of what made Stephen King's book so, you know, uh, you know resonated with so many readers feels like it's been lost each decade that passes, mm-hmm. you know, like something's been missing. They're just losing what was that key quality. I mean, you look at that eighties run of all his books and the movies that came out, that was an aesthetic. There was some sort of, there's some sort of like character that's in those books and those, in those movies. And for the first time, even over some of the, even some of the Darabont stuff, I feel like this book or this movie, this adaptation captures that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and for me, that is such an important quality. And, and tying that with the more emotional aspects of Stephen King's books is even more important than that because that's what I've long championed on this podcast and before that is that he's not just about fucking thrills and chills and spills. <laughs> and he's, he's more about and character and setting and themes that you can get from... from w- experiencing something and whether you're a kid or you're an adult or whatnot. I mean, and that's, and that's something that he's really good at doing. And this movie is really good at capturing that. So, Hey, I love that. So, and I'm very excited for the second one. And I, and I, as we told Andy Musietti and you're going to hear me gush about it, like a, <laughs> like a goon, like a stupid little fanboy, like a stupid little fanboy. <laughs> I, I, I want him to do more. Yeah. I really want him to do a lot. You know, if he sticks around with some of these, these King adaptations and he yeah, listen nail. to our interview because he dishes on some, uh, in the works, uh, King adaptations. Yeah. You know, for a while we were saying that oh, we wish we were the Duffer brothers were able to do this and not. I, and I, and I still think they're really great yeah. at what they do. But this was, it, it didn't feel like I was watching something that was achingly nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Not at you all. Know? Yeah. And that's what I loved. Yeah. But 
I got those those feelings that you get when you are watching something nostalgic where you do are you're reminded why you love something. And there was that it was just a great balance. Yeah. And, and that's so freaking hard to do. And I could, and I just, I just couldn't believe that he could do it. And that's pretty much why I think it, this movie hit me as, as hard as it could. Cause I, I agree. Like I, it should be about, I, I, if it was a lesser hand movie and they didn't hit those things, I would absolutely have probably hated this movie. Yeah. You know? Well, I think, that average, alone, you know? I think that average is out to 3.666 right, yeah, right, right, right. Clown noses. So take that rating for what you will. Go see it and then uh, send us a message or post on our Facebook and let us know what you thought about it because we want to hear your thoughts too. And because this is a big release in the Stephen King world, this is definitely poised to be the most, the highest grossing Stephen King movie of all time. Oh, yeah. If it doesn't end up being that, I will be shocked considering Dark Tower was like <laughs> one of the highest and 1408 is the highest. I think this is going to outdo Dark Tower's worldwide gross in 10 days. Yeah. It might outdo any gross from a Stephen King movie, like in the first weekend. I mean, I somebody was saying that the pre tickets. I was I was reading somewhere. I didn't look at the the the, I didn't actually click on the article. But I think the pre tickets are actually higher. Some one of the highest grossing pre ticket sales of all time too. I mean, that's it's unreal. They've changed their tracking to a potential seventy million now. Wow, that's wild. Looks like our uh, our bets and our. uh, Oh, we should really review those bets that we had. We should. We're gonna nail some of these. I think I said (laughs) eighty five. When did we say that it too was gonna be announced? By the way. Oh, we said by Wednesday. Oh wow. And it pretty much kind Today's of was, Wednesday, gonna, right? yeah. But it was announced today, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Hey, all right. So cool. So it, it we're too, really, and also, really, really smart. Yeah, we're really smart. <laughs> well, we'll say there is another. There is a. There is another revelation that happens during the credits, but we'll save that for the spoilers section. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, we're about to venture deep into the sewer. Um, so stick around if you have seen the movie. If not, stop now because we are going to spoil everything. Or if you haven't seen it and you don't care about spoilers. Yeah, if you don't care about spoilers, keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> Please. And you don't care for a little gray water. Georgie. What a nice boat. Do you want it back? Um, yes, please. We're back in the gray water, in the sewer. I am Patrick Hockstetter holding a can of aerosol and a lighter, mm. and I am burning my way through the sewer. And how disappointing was that scene? Because that scene could have been fucking awesome. Well, it started out great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh... You know, started, that, that's the type of scene that would have worked really well. I'm not kidding. In like a 1990 Tales from the Crypt episode, yeah, like a fun ending to like a 30 minute episode. Like, oh, here they here come the kids. That type oh, of uh, guess what, listeners? We're here to talk about spoilers. If you didn't figure that out, um, no, I actually. So yeah, we're in the sewer with Patrick Hockstetter, mm-hmm. and we are here to talk about the things that not not necessarily that bothered us. I think just like things that based on what we know about it and where the story goes from here. Uh, things in the movie that we thought were curious choices that sort of inform the direction of part two, because there's a couple pretty glaring differences between the source material and the, you know, the story as we're being, as it's being told to us now. And we're going to kind of see where this conversation takes us, but no, actually I just thought of the Patrick Hoxtetter scene, which 
I liked how they kind of worked Patrick into Henry Bauer's group of thugs because Pat in the in the book Patrick's more of like a uh, an outside he's an outsider because he's like, like a, a past he, bully he's still a bully but he's not in that group he's yeah. like a freak he's yeah. a weirdo mm-hmm. like yeah. he's like he's like not a loser but he's not like a bully he's like a pervert yeah. and a and like a sociopath and this and this one uh, you know portrayed by uh, young Ben Mendelsohn that's right always <laughs> from, uh, from, from Bloodline, from Bloodline. Right? Uh, I really like that actor. I, lo- I like that actor. Well, a like lot. he has a look when when Henry is carving the H in Ben's stomach. Like Belch and uh, Victor are like kind of like, what are you doing? Like yeah. that's going too far. Like Patrick is he has his face like right down by the knife, and he's like grinning. Yeah, like, he's loving it. Yeah, and that to me was like a really effective performance. So, but then I was so disappointed. And I loved like him using this uh, aerosol can and the lighter to sort of have this flamethrower. I thought it was a really cool effect, and I was enjoying this use of him. Well, they're doing the alien thing. Yeah, but just to have him encounter some zombie children I was, thought was kind of dumb yeah, yeah i'll say i think what i'll also do is i'll just kind of interject here if you if you mention something you didn't like or you mentioned something you did like i'll try to recall the scripts i read yeah because, because I did uh, read the first yeah. two drafts i believe i've not read the third one which apparently is much closer to what we saw um, yeah so we're gonna balance some of our responses to the movie with what justin read in the script so yeah and i haven't read these scripts keep this in mind in about six months so please keep that in mind. If I'm wrong, <laughs> if you've got your script, just recall that. But with the Hawksetter scene, <laughs> uh-huh. um, one of the scripts does have that death with yeah. the um, the use of the aerosol can and the lighter. But I think they're they're actually during a sequence where they're chasing, I think Mike Hanlon. Yeah, no, that's, through the Ironworks because I read that also. Yeah, the, the first works. one. And that and that's, a much, is, that's where that that script has a much bigger role for Mike, which you were talking about earlier. Right. Well, it's actually scarier because there it, it is one of my favorite things in a horror movie uh, where they're with a group. And then they leave and he stays behind mm-hmm. and you get this like kind of isolated feeling with Patrick Hoxter and you hate the guy. Yeah. But at the same time, you're like, oh shit, this guy's all alone down here and you know something bad's going to happen. And in this one, you kind of get that, but it's so fast mm-hmm. that you don't like, they could have lingered on, you know, we're talking about them lingering on too much. They could have lingered on this a little bit. Let just tease it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Have them go through the, the tunnels just a little, yeah. go deeper, even deeper and deeper. And then that claustrophobia would have said it, it's settled in. They really only show him coming up to like one barrier and being like, oh, I, I can't get out of here. And it's already at, at that point he's being chased. I think it would have been scarier if you're seeing him going even further and further down, almost like a catacomb type yeah. thing. And, and just like if he turns down a corner that he's already been down and suddenly there's like a blockage there. Yeah. That's always really freaky to me. Yeah. But like, yeah, I thought it was a good effect. The idea of he sees these figures coming towards him in the pipes and he has to light the fire to see their faces. That's yeah. a really good effect. But just it was CGI zombie faces, mm-hmm. which is yeah. like, come on, you know? Yeah. And like, I'm, you know, but I, I still thought it was, it was a neat scene. I was glad to see Patrick. And I, I thought the, you know, the kid had a really striking look to him. He had a very late 80s look to him yeah. as well, which I kind of loved. And um, so I thought that was really neat. But, you know, but at the same time, also, but I, it's like, I'm just thinking about Patrick Hoxeter in the book. And I'm also glad that we didn't get that because yeah. that's not something I ever want to see. You mean the hand job thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, not even just the hand job. Just so like the, the fridge and the, yeah, the yeah. fridge and the torturing of the animals. I kind of wanted to see that because it's such a, it's one of the most like traumatizing parts of the book. Yeah. You know, because it's got the animals thing. I know that's a, that's I can't a deal thing. with it. I can't deal with it. There's, There's a scene. We should talk about that. There's yeah. a scene in the movie where it looked like a cat was going to get shot. I know. And, and I still close his eyes. Oh boy. <laughs> Here's like, a, I, I can take, I was looking at Randall all the time. I can take, I can take Georgie, get his fucking arm ripped off and a child writhing around on the ground with an arm missing but then uh fucking henry bowers picks up a cat to shoot it and i'm like i can't look you, you were not looking you're, you're no i was covering your eyes. my eyes yeah. i can't handle it yeah, and i was just sitting there eating popcorn being like, you know <laughs> being like ben hanscom or whatever um tubbo robin yeah, tubbo. 
Randall, you briefly mentioned the book. Can we talk about that opening scene with Georgie? And yeah, let's them? talk about it. With, with no worries about the no spoilers No spoilers now? thing. No spoilers. Um, well, spoilers. That, me, that was what you were referencing before with the CGI and the key yep, incident, right? That's, yeah. yeah, okay, so we can get into that now. So that whole sequence is very terrifying. You, I think, like you said, before Annabelle creation, you could see the whole scene. Yeah. It's on YouTube now if you really well, want to watch it. Well, before Annabelle creation, they showed all of it, like right when Georgie was reaching to get the boat, they cut yes. away. So and you didn't so see the... that sequence is tremendous. And then he opens his mouth. Yeah. And it becomes this CGI effect of like rows and rows of teeth. And you see him bite down on Georgie's arm. And, you know, we're all directors here, right? So we should, we should say what we would have done, right? I, I think, actually kind of like what they did in the miniseries where you don't see him bite down. Yeah. You just see his, you see him, you see his teeth, but that's it. And then, Mike, you had a really good point. When Georgie's crawling away, you had a good idea about what they should have done they with that just sequence. let the arms stretch farther and farther and farther like out to get him. Because like, that I mean, effect was so good. That it, effect it, was good. That's great. Because it would have been like Nightmare on Elm Street 1, where his, his arms go really, really far when he's, trying, when he's running after Tina. Yeah. And... And it's so scary because it's so abnormal, mm-hmm. you know, like it's we, dream. It's dream. It's just very it's dream. Yeah. yeah. And, and for that, you know, I thought that there was a missed opportunity because that's what does happen. It's just, you don't see it. And it's like, well, you're showing everything else, but why wouldn't you show that? That's actually really creepy. Um, so yeah, I mean, instead we get like the Jaws 4 uh, death. Um, <laughs> he's in the Bahamas he's eating in, something on the banana boat. No, no, he, at the beginning of Jaws 4 when the guy gets his arm ripped off and he's oh, just yeah. like in the rain slicker and all. But <laughs> I, And he's like, oh God! Like, like, I, I, I know, didn't mind, I don't mind the CGI teeth necessarily. I think it looks kind of cool. I do too, yeah. But it was, I, see, I did though. Yeah. That was my thing. I, was, I feel like just, just put in some fucking fake teeth. Like why do we bite. have to have that? It was the bite that looked really fake. Yeah. And that's what bugged me. And that leads back to what I was talking about earlier where it got to the point because that was so tense. We Okay, it's the, let's get the Donald Macabre episode, Randall. Yeah. We talk about terror and horror and revulsion. Mm-hmm. So the terror was there and I feel like every time for the rest of the movie whenever Pennywise was on screen, whenever he would be terrifying, I was just waiting for the CGI horror to, to nail the scene down. Yeah. And so that's what kind of set me on the wrong path personally for the next two hours 15 minutes but it was for you guys it wasn't as bad for you two with the teeth but for me it was just mm-hmm. here we go yeah. i just felt like it was going to go down those rabbit holes yeah. yeah i mean i i i think that the teeth thing is a cool idea because it reminded me of the demogorgon from stranger things <laughs> <laughs> we have to have the stranger things music playing yeah. right now yeah i will i'll, I'll put on uh, some survive right now it's like we like Stranger Things that just kind of funny. I do too but like we're it, trying I think it's like I think the concept is we're comparing okay I'm trying to parse the joke you just made the joke is that Stranger Things would not exist without Stephen King and now you're comparing Stephen King yeah. works to Stranger Things exactly. there you go <laughs> but it, it, it does okay, first the Stranger Things are it <laughs> but I, I think the design is pretty cool because it, it does make for a pretty eerie visual, especially later on when we see it really take a head over and it becomes almost like Beetlejuice. That looks great. Yeah. yeah. That looks great. But the thing is, that's coming from an already created, and we talked about this earlier, the painting, the painted woman. The painted woman. The painted woman. It's yeah. a little Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, the, the woman from the painting. Yeah. yeah. But that's already a, an effective CGI rendering, so mm-hmm. I don't mind the teeth. Yeah. It's when you yeah. put that fake effect onto a human who's already giving a performance. That's what takes me out. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, that's what takes me out. Because I, I was very chilled by that scene where that, when those teeth are just 
yeah. covering Stan's face. And I uh, thought, I actually, did you think for a second, are they going to kill Stan? Yeah, I did think that. I, I thought that. I, I really thought, that thought that was going to happen. I thought, for, yeah. I thought Stan was absolutely dead at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, talk about Stan because yeah. I, okay, if there's, and this is going to touch on my thoughts about Henry Bowers too, which is my kind of my main takeaway from, not takeaway, but. Uh, problem maybe with uh, this movie, but I'd say that uh, we'll talk about Stan first. Mm -hmm. Stan is different than the rest of the kids because in the miniseries and in the book, he's the only one of them that sees its true form as a child. He sees the deadlights when they burst through the pipe, which I believe is what happens in the book as well as the miniseries. Um, And he stares right into it, as does Henry Bowers. Henry Bowers loses his mind, his hair turns white, but Stan comes out okay, but obviously something fundamentally... Well, he physically, but he something fundamentally breaks in his mind. And that's why when it resurfaces years later, he kills himself. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, in my mind, to the horror. I mean, if you want to talk about terror, like Dance Macabre terror... The deadlights for me epitomize that. Yeah. The concept that you're staring at some it's it's Lovecraftian. It's you're mm-hmm. staring at something so horrifying it destroys your mind. And that to me is so fascinating. But I, they, they I do that here that. though. I, I still I feel like they do the you, deadlights. You think that he, when yes. that woman when the painted because, woman's Well no, not even just that. Yeah, well, when he's on stand, over. I think so. Because look, look, the mechanics of it we see. Because when Bev is staring right into Pennywise's mouth. You see those two lights that are down below, and I think that's supposed to be the literal interpretation of the dead lights. Yeah, and now that we because that happens before the stand incident, and it's the same entity. I mean, it and you know mm-hmm. Pennywise and the painting are the same person, yeah. and the mouth is covering Stan's face, and when he comes out of it, he's immediately like like revenge like vengeful against mm-hmm. his friends. He's like, "You guys, you guys aren't my friends." Blah blah. blah. You know this, yeah. and there's this doubt and this like sort of dourness to his attitude immediately mm-hmm. and i imagine that they're gonna have to recall yeah. on that like i they, I, I mean I it's think, just i don't think you're i've wrong. actually got the biological um poster here of the uh <laughs> of the it creature so what we're looking yeah. at here is we've got no but i think in that instance though because when it happens to bev you see her eyes kind of become you white yeah but i feel like something like that would have happened to stan though I, when stan comes out he's not in any kind of real daze he's obviously angry he's freaked out because the entire movie's been freaked out but it hasn't it wasn't able to be finished though that's the thing. So you think it started? Yes. And it didn't get far enough. But that actually leads to a whole other thing with what we'll talk about when we're doing the book is as to why Stan killed himself. I don't necessarily think it was because of the deadlights. I always thought it was because of the deadlights. But it, no, but that's a great point. But I always, yeah. but again, we'll talk about that's a great discussion to have. Um, uh, is, in, that, in is, that, is that a bottom uh, sewer spoilers? Uh, that's a, that's like a spoiler, 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 spoiler. <laughs> yeah. We won't even dare about it. This you. is just spoilers just about the movie. my personal takes. Not the book. We, can't, we can't spoil the book right now. So but. I guess, I don't know. I, I guess it just ties in, and I'll just touch on Henry Bowers now. Henry Bowers to me is such an important character to the whole story. And he plays, I really like the actor who plays him in this. I think. Hello. Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. 
Head to Factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at Factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. He's great. I think that we see a few moments with him and his dad that we never got in the miniseries that I think humanize him uh, a little bit more. We see how scared he is of his dad. I wish there was more. And Justin, you said that. There sure is. In in one of the scripts, there's much more between um, Henry Bowers and his father. Uh, There's a a whole sequence where the kids go to report uh, Betty Ripsom's shoe that they find in the movie. Same thing happens in the script. They go to report it to the cops, Henry Bowers' father in the movie, and this is, is a cop. And, of course... They dismiss it because, as we all know, the people in Derry are not what we think they are. Really, mm-hmm. um, but there's there's a lot more between there's a lot more in that relationship in the script. I really that's wish not we in the saw movie. more. And of I, that. I was kind of curious as to why they decided to cut that out well, because it felt to me that Harry just was this bully who all of a sudden here we go now he's being kind of possessed by it or the spirit of it and now it's gonna be crazy. Like there wasn't that that natural progression that you can find kind of in the miniseries, you know? Right. Yeah, a little bit. I I still think that the scene with his dad shooting him at his shooting at the feet was pretty much enough. Um, I do wish we would have seen maybe one more scene where he comes home earlier in the movie. Yeah, and his dad is like some you know not just a jerk, just a jerk to him, yeah. or like re- you get to see even more reason why he's a bully. Um, I I really love the fact that they even gave him a scene. Yeah, uh, for that matter, because it would be so easy to just kind of paint him as like this is the villain, this bully. You know, this is what's going to happen, but. No, reality is is that these kids, the, the kid, you know, bullies are just as scared as the the victims, and they're right. just because they were victims at one point, and they, for the most part, and they probably assumed that rage and turned it onto someone else that's weaker than them, and that's that's pretty much the traditional narrative for most bullies, and like the fact that they showed they peeled back that layers in this was were great, and and also speaks to how King usually does it too, because mm-hmm. we usually see a lot of backstories for minor characters in any of his books, but the, he, Henry and, is the bully yeah he transcends uh pure he becomes pure evil yeah and that to me is so important i love seeing the human the humanization of him Mm -hmm. in those moments but the moment when he like there is such a build-up in the book i remember to him uh pennywise sort of recruiting him and giving him that knife and i think a lot of it is Mm -hmm. internal and mental which is hard to portray on screen but you know it's pretty much that he's just with his friends and then he sees the balloon on the mailbox and he goes to the uh mailbox and opens it and his knife is in there and then he goes and he kills his dad and i i just felt like it seemed i'm like i kept thinking i'm like well, what are vic and uh belch doing as he's killing his dad in the house because they struck me as being less evil than him you know mm-hmm. and uh like him and patrick were the real evil ones and so i felt like his evil never it wasn't really earned and then also it never really became clear to me how he ended up at the Niebold house. Like I needed that scene. I loved seeing the the TV show and them saying, kill him, kill him, you know, uh, or kill them all, kill them all. That was awesome. Yeah. But I needed that moment where he really connected with Pennywise and where Pennywise basically told 
told him where the kids were, or at least like hinted at that because I, that's in, that's there. And I felt like it was important. So, you know, for me, Henry going down in the sewer with Belch and Vic is so important because the kids are down there fighting what is essentially, I mean, it's not imaginary, but it deals with imaginary concepts. Mm -hmm. They defeat it using their imagination and their innocence and their sense of belief in, you know, the ineffable. But Henry and Belch and Vic are real threats. They're the bullies. They're, the, you know, they're actual tangible threats. And the fact that we did not get them down there, the fact that Belch and Vic aren't even with Henry and that Henry's only role is to attack Mike when, you know, he's dropping the rope down the well and that Mike just knocks him into the well and apparently kills him. Like, Justin, you were talking about how you were looking at every horror scene like you were waiting for the CGI to come and ruin it. For me, <laughs> I found myself, I found myself, uh, not enjoying the ending as much as I wanted because I kept waiting for the scene to happen where we saw that it had somehow, you know, levitated Henry Bowers or something and did not kill him and was like, basically like, go kill them. Cause I needed that scene yeah. where him and Stan, like they try to kill Stan in the sewer and then the deadlights come and they both see it because even in the miniseries, I love the kid who plays Henry Bowers in the miniseries, but like when he sees the deadlights, his hair turns white, his mind breaks. It's so powerful. And then mm -hmm. he plays an important role later in yeah. the uh, second well, part. And I just don't know. I, I can't believe that they just tossed him off like th there's that. There's a few things I, I think we could very easily hear something like, oh, Henry Bowers, you know, he actually lived. He survived that fall yeah. or something like that. I, know. I thought that he was going to come stumbling in with a broken leg. I wanted that to you know, happen. I, thought I just that was wanted something. Again, though, in the script, there's a whole part where Bev's, one of the one of the scripts, I should say, um, Bev's father mm -hmm. undergoes a very similar trance to what Henry undergoes in the film. And he becomes kind of guided by by it, and he and you know he forces. Bev's father is obviously a piece of shit, Al Marsh, but he becomes pure evil, just like Henry kind of starts to become pure evil. And it's um, Al Marsh that leads um, Henry and I believe Vic and Belch down into the sewers after mm -hmm. the kids. Yeah, that's a whole that sequence is not at all in the uh, the film that we saw. Too. And I was just bummed that we didn't get Belch and Vic down there just to get a couple of fresh kills. One of your favorite kills in the miniseries has to do with Belch. Yeah, man. Belch getting sucked into the deadlights in the pipe and bending over. Like, oh, yeah. that sequence is so fucking awesome. Maybe... I know what's going to happen. Here we go. Uh-oh. It Chapter 2. There's no Henry, but guess who's going to be in it? Old Belch and Old Vic. Oh, they're coming back? <laughs> that's, the, that's a twist. For hey, revenge. Bel Belch is in the second part. His uh, rotted corpse comes and drives Henry Christine. to the motel where they are. Drives Christine. Drives oh, yeah. Christine. He drives Christine. Yeah. How about that? Where's Cujo? Is Cujo driving the car? Well, we were joking about that last night. <laughs> I know. Well, we can talk about spoilers. Great. So Cujo is driving Christine in this <laughs> near the end. When they think everything's fine, they need a lift. Yeah. And then Constant listeners, like, woof, woof. we were comparing last night the concept of, remember how Dark Tower, they were just so desperate to get people interested in it that all they did was show how it was connected to other Stephen King things. And like, hey, Cujo's in it. And that just meant... Hey, look, it's a St. Bernard on the street in one scene. That kind of drove us crazy. So we basically spent a lot of last night talking about all the would-be cameos that would have popped up in it if it was also in dire straits like Dark Tower. I said, we said um, at the very end, just me think all is lost. You hear a gunshot and you turn around and it's, it's the gunslinger. It's Roland himself. He's there. He's and saved the day. And he's Mike's father. Yep. And he's <laughs> like, where's Uncle Jake? I mean, I... It, it, <laughs> It's unbelievable when you look at these two movies oh and see God. which one is a real film. I know. You know, it, it, like just the concept that they shoehorned in all those references within five minutes in the Dark Tower 
And you don't get really one of them here in this entire film. Well, I don't know if we've talked, if we've besmirched Snow, if we've, I'm sorry, if we've besmirched Sony a lot, a lot in this <laughs> podcast. But um, I should say that it's incredible that Sony has a Dark Tower out one month, and then a month later, Warner Brothers, who is angling to, you know, get the James Bond rights, by the way, from Sony, delivers it, and it just shows what a small time corporation Sony is. <laughs> small time. Uh, speaking of small time, I love that this was released under the New Line Cinema label, especially mm-hmm. since this takes place in like the you know late eighties. Yeah, it's got that that cool. That's why they got the Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five poster in there. Yeah, probably. that is true. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, that's fun. You know, it is interesting that we didn't they didn't use a, a Kruger. We could have gotten a Robert England to come back. Ooh, <laughs> you know, you no, know, that, that actually would have been the, night, but the dream. We've, we've really talked about this Dream Child poster a lot. Yeah. But when they show that, I really did think for a second, are they going to have Freddy? Yes. Yeah, oh, that would have been actually really cool. You know? Especially if they got Robert Englund to come back, though. But he would have been only like Jack decrepit. Your, only Jack Earl Haley for me. <laughs> oh, a Jack Earl Haley. The I, real I, I ride Haley. Freddy Krueger. The true embodiment Well, of let's talk a little bit about the ending because mm-hmm. it's not, it's played, I think sort of the destruction of Pennywise is played very differently here. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of the slingshot and the, uh, what is it, the breathalyzer, what is it? The, breath, the inhaler. The, the inhaler. Uh, we get the the thing that kills the sheep. Um, the bolt. It's like a bolt gun. Yeah, the bolt gun that uh, Mike uses. And I thought it was a curious change. Um, maybe I guess it was just because kids didn't use slingshots in the late 80s. Like that was a trend that was out. Um, but I, I think it would just been another thing that they would have had to explain. Like, yeah. Oh, look, she's really good at throwing you know things. Because I was like... Again, it goes back to like these like one note characteristics of each of the characters that clearly Musietti was trying to avoid. Yeah, he was trying to be a little bit more like more economy with him. I mean, he talks about this in an interview about how, and we mentioned it before about how he tried she, he tried to give like Bev like more Bill's qualities of leaderships mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think by just having it be like, hey, look, she's really good at firing things, which is basically what the book does. It's yeah. like, oh, like <laughs> look how awesome she is at hitting these bullseyes or something. It's like okay. It was like a cool callback in the book, I guess. But well, no, because in the book they're trying to figure out who's going to do it. Remember, and they all yeah. Up the thing. I mean, that made sense in the book. Yeah, too. no, it does. Like in a way, but it also just feel it seemed like, hey, that's her power, and especially oh, in the miniseries, that was kind of like the way they did it, also. But um, so I was kind of glad they got rid of it. I, I mean, I think this is still a very drawn out battle. Yeah. That I don't really feel is neat. you don't need to have a drawn out battle for uh, at least a horror movie well, like i always physical. hate that and it was physical so was I, I i appreciate that anyways i appreciate the physical aspect as opposed to this i mean i'm not a huge fan of how they handled like the ending thing in, in, in the book anyway but um I, i'm glad it didn't become this ridiculous like spider lobster thing at the well you know that doesn't happen until they come back as adults i know so it but, still yeah, very well true. could happen well, I'll say <laughs> and you the, did see the spider uh arm come out yeah, of Pennywise you did, at one you point. Did. I, I didn't yeah. mind actually i didn't mind all the mic why i didn't like was i i thought that well, this was this is what i thought was gonna happen sorry if i'm stumbling I thought that the bolt gun, because Mike screams out, we're out, we're out yeah, of bolts. Yeah, it's not loaded, whatever. yeah. I thought that at that point, that's when the imagination was going to kick in. And even though it wasn't really loaded, akin to the um, the, the inhaler in the book, it was still going to affect him when he well, shot it did. Him. It, it does. did, but I thought yeah. it was going to be like the death blow. Well, it's like, and I was thinking about it, he does it and it works, but then Pennywise just sort of recovers, but yeah. then later that hole where he was shot like is what shatters but that's later mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't happen to him right away i couldn't draw the a kind yeah, of was that connected I yeah wonder. i that couldn't draw thing. a clear line be- between what they did 
that defeated Pennywise. No, I can't either. Because there seems was so like much battering. physical violence. It was going back and forth between imaginary violence with you know what you just said, Justin, um, and then them just beating the shit out of him with lead pipes and stuff. Is that cool? Yeah, it was. It was a fun sequence. I liked Pennywise transforming into all of their fears the as T-1000 they were fighting ending. him. But at the same t- wait, what the T one thousand? But the, no, they, they they kill him because they're not afraid of him anymore. I know, but at, you know, yeah, but that's just. I, 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 I like that in a way because it ties into the whole theme of this them growing up and, and being able to conquer their own respective fears. And it ties in, especially come, hits hard with the ending. I I bought that more than the idea that they needed to have some special slingshot, you know, slingshot or some sort of token thing that they could really kind of make it seem to be some sort of key. I just thought it, the spiritual element of them not caring about him anymore was good. And I always, it reminded me of like a Nightmare on Elm Street because that's kind of how you kill yeah, Freddy you also. take his power away from um, him. Well, there you go. That's, yeah, that's so. kind of a problem I had though was the whole Freddy Krueger element that kind of... Well, that's the problem with the, it in the, the beginning. With. The I mean, it came out in 86 became... and the Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 84. So... No, I'm, I'm saying mean, though in this movie though, Pennywise felt a lot more like Freddy Krueger than he had. But I, I've always thought Pennywise is like Freddy Krueger though. Oh. I mean, it came, I mean, it literally came out around the same time as the Nightmare on Elm Street. It just felt like such a similar story. Um... So I don't know. I maybe mean, I just yeah. maybe I just had a bad taste in my mouth about the ending because I literally just kept fucking waiting for Henry Bowers, Henry Bowers to show yeah. up. But we we should talk about the very very end, which I really want to talk about, which we didn't want to talk about earlier on. And yeah. I, I thought that was a real beautiful piece yeah. of dialogue that Bev says, which that really encompasses the whole movie. Is you know I never felt like a loser when I was with you guys. Yeah, I, I that really just like oh I really I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right well, now. And it goes to that yeah it goes to the how they defeat him. They all conquer their own fears together yeah. to be able to you know to take them down I think that, see i think that idea works if this was just a one-off movie but then you get into the issue of well he's still going to come back in 27 years oh but years you like, have new fears that's the thing but why why is it these seven kids well i guess I'll, that could, the whole problem. because they but, made the bond yeah oh that's true you know I mean, hey look i'm I, a, yeah. i'm you know i'm a smordinsky uh the uh, my client is uh it they fired or filed a registered uh patent with me about two years ago when Wait, what's your name again? smorliginsky smordinsky smorginsky yeah okay yeah. I like I, I like to, the name Smorliginsky. Yeah, Smorliginsky. First name is S Actually, my name was Smorliginsky, and I changed it to you know because there are a lot of anti semites out here. Oh Jesus Christ! All right. Anyway, no. No, I think that's. I think what you're saying, Mike, is really interesting, and I do agree. You know, it, I. It's like when you have a villain like Pennywise, and this is the. You're you're exactly like this is the problem with the book because even the end of the second one, it's fucking nonsense. nonsense. Like the way that they defeat it, yeah. and then even then we see in Dreamcatcher, we see in Eleven Twenty Two. Uh, well, no, I guess in Eleven Twenty Two he's in the past, but we see in Dreamcatcher that Pennywise still is around. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, wait, really? Well, yeah, there's like, graffiti on the wall. There's graffiti that says Pennywise, Pennywise lives. lives. Oh. Yeah, and then on the Dark Tower with the Dandelo thing, which is hinted that that's supposed yeah. To be. And then also, even if you just want to look at Tommyknockers, because you know they see Pennywise in the sewer when uh, they're they drive through Derry. Some of the characters in that. I don't know if you guys remember that, that, is that little Easter no egg. No joke. Maybe the mo- the scariest moment of a Stephen King book for me. Is what? Is that moment in Tommyknockers. But you hate Tommyknockers. I know. Well, that moment. 
Hey, yeah, is that, that before moment. or after the cutoff point when you go, nope, I hate this book? Um, we're getting there. I think, I think it's, <laughs> no, it's around that time. Like, Are they driving like, to that moment? Like, get back to Haven already. It's, like, it's Anyway, I'm getting flashbacks. Wait, wait, so in, the, like in the book, the Time Knockers, they, they're driving and then like, they look over the sewer and there's like eyes or well, something? Well, it's a long story short. Like, it's because when they leave Haven, when they move away from the spaceship, they, get they, sick. they start to get sick and they need delusional. the power of it and they get delusional. So when they're going to pick up batteries, uh, this couple, they're like minor characters in it. They're like literally oh, crumbling uh, because their bodies are falling apart and they're having delusions as they're driving and they're driving through dairy and then they see Pennywise in the sewers but they think it's a delusion. He's oh, in the weird. sewer. He's got his silver eyes and he's waving it. Oh, that's it's awesome. That, I, mean, I remember reading it and, and like I had to double check. Is this what I'm reading here? And then just kind of dropping the book like Jesus I kind of love Christ. that. You're... It's such a one-off. It's so far into the book. Yeah. We haven't talked about dairy or anything for a long because we know it's around dairy but we haven't talked about dairy at all the entire book. I love And to have that moment happen and have it feel so natural and how they're just like, oh, well, we're just losing it, so it's not real. But we know it's real. Oh, God. I'm the, looking forward the, to reading that moment the, again. I thought the 1122 inclusion was great. Yeah, I love when, that. When they're just... I can't remember who... Is it Bev and Bill? Bev and Ben, I believe. Are Bev and Ben? No, Bev and Richie. Oh, it is Bev and Richie, right? It's Bev and Richie, yeah. 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 Um, is there, I, I, isn't there a callback to the giant bird that attacks Mike? Or, like, is it that pipe that he hides It's a in? pipe. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he sees that too. something's there. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't see anything, but he feels that something's there, and he's like, "I'm not going. I don't want to be here anymore." I and it's love like, that. and it's in that weird moment where it's like not afternoon anymore, but yeah. it's like right, you know, right in the evening. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a um, section that's never been in any of the movies. That obviously, I think it would probably yeah. be too hard. But Mike, the giant bird attacking Mike in the pipe is such a great sequence. Yeah. Well, let's. I, we're jumping around at this point, right? Kind of. Yeah, yeah we're go good. For it. We're good. I, I still feel like this. There, there's a really good limited series you could do with it. Yeah. And I think that's where you're going to find the best, you the best adaptation of it would be in a limited series. Well, get ready for that in forty years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't. I can't wait until I'm. You know, I'll show. With my, I'll sit down with my grandchildren and watch it. Yeah. So but, yeah, I so I guess like you know my questions for oh and then also spoiler uh, the end of it it said it chapter one was it said mm-hmm. after the or right before the closing credits which I thought was a very telling uh, hint that we are definitely getting a chapter two which is exciting it was like mm-hmm. when I said Ghostbusters answer the call at the yes. end of Ghostbusters. Wait, yeah, yeah, they really? did that. Yeah, yeah. that was at the yeah. very end. But Ghost then they just and called, that's the real title. But then they end up calling the movie. Ghostbusters answer the call. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I get, and then Sony just hung up. <laughs> but so the se- that was supposed to be a sequel. Yeah. But then they just called it that. No, 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 no. no it no, wasn't no. a sequel. It, it was Stanley, that was the true name of the movie was oh. Ghostbusters answer yeah. the call. Just like this, with the true name of it is it's it like Twin one. Peaks: The Return, yeah. and they were calling it Twin Peaks Forever, and the the return didn't even pop up until later on. So jeez. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, okay. Um, it's kind of weird how they're doing. That. I don't like that fat either. Just put the fucking title out there. That's right. Um, but I guess like I'm just curious about. You know, and, and here's the thing is Henry Bowers doesn't even play that major of a role in part two. I know I keep talking about it. I just love him. He's so bad. You're, you're the only he's one probably that is worried about Henry Bowers. I, no, I, I think that, that the second one, the success for failure will not lie whether or not Henry Bowers attacks Mike Hanlon in the hotel <laughs> but here's room. here's the thing. <laughs> but I just love Look, him. I want I know. I do look, too. I do when too. But reduce, I don't think there's enough time to I spend know. with them. When, when you're know. minimizing adaptations, what they're going to do is they're going to put all the elements that they had for Henry Bowers into Bev's abusive husband. That, That's what's that going to happen. Sense. That's, that and make it makes sense, sense because it, yeah. it, I, I felt, even in reading Tom. the book, I love that you had all these other threats. But a lot of it, like when he gets towards the end, there is so much shit going on. And it would be nice to be able to kind of like, like make it a little more concise. I guess and that's what like, they're going to have to do with a two-hour yeah. movie. For me, I love the concept 
and I guess this is why I get so hung up on it, is one of the things that makes it so dangerous and scary and magical to me is that Stephen King takes an archetype that is otherwise, you know, a part of life and innocuous, and he elevates it to true monster status. Henry is just like any other bully that, you know, well, not just like any other. My bullies didn't carve letters into my stomach but um but at, <laughs> but at the same time like you know henry goes from school bully to uh you know genuine murder sociopath monster in the course and he's possessed by evil and that to me is part of what makes it so scary so interesting so special because it not only elevates the goodness in these kids it elevates the evil in the kids who already are evil. Mm -hmm. And that to me is an essential part of the story. And so just to see Henry sort of boiled down to boilerplate villain who, you know, Mike gets one up on. And I think the problem too, is we, we barely saw, we saw a little bit of Henry bullying on Mike, but we more saw him bullying on Ben. And I think if anybody should have gotten over on Henry Bowers, it should have been Ben and not Mike, because that's mm -hmm. kind of yeah. the narrative we got in the in the movie. So it just I, I'm not saying that I don't like it and I'll be fine with it. And the thing is, I think you brought this up, Mike. We'll we'll probably see Henry pop up in the second oh, one totally. as, you know, a manifestation of of um, oh, of Mike's fears. And so but I do think and you can right. bring back the kid actor, too, if you do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Which is why casting. they probably have to start filming soon. Well, Andy said that older. he wants to they the want to use all the anyway. kids. Yeah. They want to use all the kids in the second movie. Interesting. So they're probably going to have to start. filming. Yeah. Don't you feel like that kid who plays Eddie is going to be like six feet tall. By I the know. Time they start filming they're them. all going to start blossoming. So. You think at the the alternate ending of, of this movie was uh, Mike walking off, you know, away from the pack and then saying, "God, you know, I really killed Henry Bowers, didn't I?" Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, you should probably go talk to Henry's father." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like that scene in Anchorman where oh, it's like, "Wow, you Mike killed, killed a man a with a trident." <laughs> <laughs> but it's I pushed him into that well. Or that <laughs> to be too. fair, it was in self defense. It was in self defense, but and they really stressed that. I don't know. Yeah, I know. Things he, are looking too good for Mike Hamlin. I think. That's all I'm saying. I know, yeah. In in uh, in Maine, especially in Derry. Um, yeah, this is pretty bad. Uh, I, you know, we talked about the world building a lot, but I did like that they mentioned. Uh, speaking of Mike, they they talked about because um, that is his story with his dad, the black spot. We thought that that we were going to get that with like the shot of like all the hands like like burning and and, and I don't whatnot. think it was the black spot. But though, was that's it? not that. It, but they mentioned it in the articles. Okay, so articles, when Ben's going through all the the different uh, parts of uh, Derry. What I would love is if they could make some like special short film thing that's tied online as a promotional thing between the two movies. Maybe well, think about it. they've started to do that. They did it with um, the last Alien movie. They're doing it with, they Blade, do it with Blade, Runner Blade Runner right now. Yeah, so, and it's Warner Brothers. Stuff, I mean, so. that would be awesome if they did that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get Scatman Crothers <laughs> to come back. <laughs> And well, played Dick Halloran. No, um, man, but you know what part, you know what part fucking scared the shit out of me was when Ben was looking at the photos of the Easter massacre. Yeah. And the zoom in on the fucking kid's head yeah. in the tree. That was so oh, scary. Like, that, that was, was my head, like, my hair is like yeah. saying it's just that. Yeah. I, I, let's go over this, some of the scarier stuff because th this is a horror movie. So we should go to the yeah. stuff that really did work that we, now that we're in the spoiler section. Okay. That, that did scare me. That terrified me. We've already talked about the painting, but just the setup of that is one of the most, like, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but like one of the most ingenious setups for a horror sequence I've mm -hmm. seen in years. Yeah. Just seeing the, you see it like the portrait, just like uh, Stan does. And then the minute you see that it's gone, you're like, Oh God, where is it? But then you hear that flute. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I was frozen solid. I, I like I that that's, that scene scared me so much, and I I could not stop thinking about it last night. Um, because oh. there's just something so irregular about that that form that it, it's just like oh god, it reminded me of Silent Hill, like early early Silent Hill back when that kind of yeah when it was still just kind of like an homage to Jacob's Ladder and that yeah. style of horror wasn't really prevalent. Um, but man, that was the most effective scare for me. I, I think um, well that that scene reminded me of. Has everybody here seen The Conjuring 2? Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> Didn't it kind of remind you of the nun scene, like the nun in the painting? A and little like, the bit. But no, I'm saying is yeah. this was far more effective yeah. because they were they said, okay, here's the scare. Here's the genuine scare that's going to happen. I feel like with um, The Conjuring 2, there's a whole bunch of buildup and like a whole bunch of weight, dragging it out. Yeah. Here's the jump scare. Here's a fake scare. And now here's the real scare. And I appreciate what he did in, uh, in it. I do well, appreciate what Mushi. Let's did. talk about this. One of the things that I've seen blowback on from some critics is that it had too many quote unquote jump scares. And I, and I think we all had, we did not feel that way. And I think that's because we have come to associate jump scares with fake scares yes. with the buildup and the tension. And then it's a cat going, Meow, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the scare or just some, it's always a fake out. Somebody coming in and surprising you from behind. Those are to me, bullshit scares though. Or I'll say the other thing is if it's not the fake out scare, it's the sting scare where the, like there's a couple moments in it where the the volume of the sound serves to heighten the horror. Like mm-hmm. when Georgie runs by and his radio crackles, I didn't mind that as much because the radio was an object he was holding. It was a thing and it's something Bill would have heard. And whereas if you watch a movie like Lights Out, every single scare is accompanied by a fucking, you know, 50,000 people hitting a violin note at once to the point where it just shatters your fucking ears. Mm. It drives me crazy. I cannot deal with that. But what I, so I'd say that I think jump scares are actually great if they're done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mean, I Halloween like, is filled with jump yeah, scares. Yeah. And I feel like this movie, I think that's sort of an unfair criticism. Jump scares are part of horror. And I felt like yeah. this movie earned, I'd say most of its jump scares. Yeah. The part that we struggled with wasn't the jump the Cause there was no, there were no fake scares that I can recall. No, in this I don't movie. really weren't. That's why I, I walked out. Uh, as negative as, as I've been, I walked out and she said, oh, you know, I really appreciate the fact there were no jump scares yeah. in the movie. And there were, but it, we associate but, I mean, that with a different... But what we mean is fake scares. Yeah. Genuine fake scares. Outs. There were no fake outs. Yeah, yeah, they were genuine scares, and I like that. And so I guess, like, you know, our bigger problem, as we said during the non-spoiler part, was just the idea that... Um, those I think some of the jump scares were undercut by the fact that it lingered too long and we saw a little bit too much computer uh, glitchy bullshit, uh, you know, when a clown is running at you, which really shouldn't be the case. And you know what? Another moment I want to point out that was really kind of stupid. And I think we all can kind of agree that Richie in the clown room, it, yeah. had, it had moments that were good. Like I kind of liked him finding the little doll of himself in there and like that was kind of fun. But then Pennywise jumping out of the coffin or whatever and like, yeah, doing, like doing that karate weird pose. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Like he jumps in the air like he's fucking like Jean-Claude Van Damme yeah. jumping out of the thing and I'm just like what are you doing yeah, yeah that, that whole sequence was, uh, was really lame and I even when they mentioned like oh um, I'm scared of this I'm scared of that I'm scared of you know this and that and then they go to Richie and it's like, I'm scared of clowns. It's like, wait, what? Like, yeah, <laughs> I thought that was, and that I was mean, a way to so sort easy. of, that was, well, that was sort of a way of like acknowledging the scary clown trope because yeah. I think it wasn't as prevalent back then. And it contributed in a lot of ways to the fear of clowns. I mean, I guess it was ironic because he's the class clown, yeah. and, you know, yeah. but it was fine. It was just, you know, it was, I, that scare didn't really land for me. And, um, you know, I felt like they could have done something else, but I just say that, uh, you like the acid though. Acid. 
with the the stuff that's uh that weird b- bubbling stuff that was on the ground when they were oh yeah that was cool in. yeah isn't that from the book yeah. yeah yeah i remember that um that was neat and then yeah what else freaked me out i mean oh, oh the oh, arm oh. the arm thing with eddie is pretty gross i didn't realize they were gonna go that far with him like, oh with his arm broken with his arm broken <laughs> yeah. oh, that was, i thought that was pretty good yeah. oh and, i'll say the mike hanlon scare though with the the hands reaching around the door and then it opening and then seeing pennywise hanging on the meat hook that yeah. was great because that's an example of it being in the background and kind yeah. of shrouded and all you yeah. see are those yellow eyes that, that was, was really effective that was, well, that was really effective. are you talking about when when georgie goes to get the thing in the beginning and then you see the shiny eyes and that's the cool that too, was amazing I was talking about when mike opens the door and he sees the like he's like on a hook with some kid eating some kid. Oh and yeah, you see yeah. Yellow eyes. Is that at the, the Nibel house or? No, that's at the. Um, it's right after the scene where he imagines the um, the hands coming out of the door. Oh the right, scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the yeah. door swings open. Oh, that was very scary. Actually, that's, do you remember yeah. Mike when he was getting beaten up by Henry, and then he looks over and he saw Pennywise eating a kid's arm yeah. and waving at him? I kind of like that. That even was a, yeah. That was like a funny little moment. It was a funny. I, like he was entertained by this. If I wasn't yeah. liking the movie, I would be more like, oh, what the fuck? Yeah. It's fake arm. He's always holding a fake exactly. arm. Exactly. Yeah. Like that. I wouldn't have liked it if I didn't like the movie, yeah. but I yeah. do like it because it was kind of. It was just absurd. It was an absurd yeah. little moment that gave the movie sort of a weird, like it, it made the movie that much more twisted. And I yeah. really love that. Yeah. So that was, I felt like there was, you know, and I'll also say like, you know, the, the sequence with Ben in the library, uh, the stop motion monster, oh, I thought God, was really so effective. Scary. The missing head was really cool. Well, there, and there, then that was the one where Pennywise was, when he was getting chased and he turned and there was literally that one second shot of Pennywise behind him and his eyes were dead. And that to me was like, oh, like yeah. that, that really scared me. I mean, that to me was like, cause there was a bit of CGI there, but that was where the CGI was one second. It worked really well. Well, scares for me work best when I actually just try to solve how I would, you know, get out of it. Yeah. And you know, when you do that, it means that they've won the movies won, mm-hmm. and it's actually, you know, taken over your mind in some sort of way. And for the Ben scene, I, the, the first thing I thought of where, where am I going to run? I was like, where, where, where can he run? Where, you know, where's their escape? And like so that 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 sort of claustrophobia mixed in with this this object that didn't even seem like Pennywise. It seemed like it was a creation of his that had no mind, yeah. it had a mind of its own. And that was something I liked also. Is that like it would have been so easy for him to just assume these identities and act like, like his own self, but they all had their own respective personalities. Like the painting is almost like lopsided and it doesn't mm-hmm. know how to stand because it's not that. a real thing. Um, the the headless uh, burned corpse. I think that was from what he was just studying. Yep, maybe. yeah, yep. Um, Fire, yeah. He uh, almost doesn't realize like like know where it's going in a right. weird way. So it, it's almost like what are these things? Like, are they like lost souls that like, maybe he just like kind of wires into these creations? Like, is it really Pennywise? Like th- that sort of like depth to his own mythology that they don't really explain. They just leave it to the imagination. Really frightened. Like me are also. these puppets or are they actually him? Yeah, yeah. Because then you can't, when you do that and then you start thinking about the situations, you're like, I don't even know. Cause what are the rules with this? Like, you know, it, that's kind of scary. Well, um, we haven't talked about one of those uh, creations or maybe it's just Pennywise yet. And that's the leper. Oh, yeah. yeah, I didn't like the. Uh, I like the daytime the makeup on, on on that leper. It was a little. It seemed a little like uh, somebody from like somebody something out of Labyrinth or something like that. I I liked it. it looked when like Huggle from Labyrinth. The, <laughs> the Huggle. Well, Labyrinth, as you know, is my favorite movie. One of your of all favorite time. films. Um, yeah, great, great movie. Love, but anyway, I, I was just kind of taking B sides, the, the by close David ups, Bowie. and the noise it would make, and like the. I thought the first time you see it in the daytime because it's little pieces, you know, yeah. pieces and parcels that you see of the the leper 
worked really well. But then they bring it back and it's like in that shadowy thing. And then CGI never looks good in the dark for me. Most of the time, a lot of the times, because I mean, well, it just depends on the shading, but a lot of the times it gets too glossy and because they have to assume that there's some sort of light that's giving, you know, that's showing this fake thing. And it just looks fake. So that part, it just became too shiny. Like I was looking at an action figure or something. But Yeah, I'd say the leper was one of the less successful um, monsters for me, but spooks. But, um, but you know, I thought it was, I thought it was kind of, I thought, I thought it, it achieved revulsion if we're talking in dance macabre terms. I thought it was kind mm-hmm. of gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that worked for Richie, I mean, for Eddie's character because he was so grossed out by gross things. And uh, I thought that they achieved a certain kind of, you know, it wasn't really scary to me, but it was gross. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, that's sort of a cheap scare, but, uh, but I thought it kind of looked a bit Muppetish. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it was like a Jim Henson creation. Uh, what I liked about, <laughs> what I liked about his initial scene is that the way he pops out is really jarring. I mean, he's like literally right behind him. Yeah. So there was really nowhere to go. And that, yeah, that, that concept of Pennywise being able to just materialize right next to you, really scary. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just being something in the distance, you know, taught, you know, taunting whatever yeah the fact but those, that he, those moments when pennywise would appear in the distance were so great they are they there's are a great are. scene where he's just standing in the i guess it's the same scene where he re- reveals he's eating the arm there's a scene where they kind of look off and he's just standing in the weeds looking yeah at them. love oh, that that's, so that's good. a good scene yeah that's a good scene well we're huge fans of seeing stuff you know it's like that's why it follows is uh, yeah so i agree i just me. think that and even it's far away that you have of, of being trapped and there's nowhere to go no matter how far away the or even yeah. just the idea is. that something's looking at you from really far away that's so scary yeah. to how me. long has it been there looking yes. at you i hate being stared what at what is it well, that's like, why halloween like, is so effective yeah like unless i want to be stared at but like if i'm on stage or something i don't give a shit but like if i'm in just in life and somebody's staring at me it makes me supremely uncomfortable well, it goes back to like the, the thing you just said was just how long have they been staring yeah. and then you wonder yeah. like why are they staring yeah. and what, know, is what do they know what of me now and because you know how long they actually been studying my 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 movements and whatever Um, yeah that's so freaky and so yeah i think those those moments are really effective but yeah i mean um like what else spooked you guys like i I felt like the final sequence for me didn't really have a ton of scares i thought that i thought the image of the floating children was effective Mm -hmm. not necessarily scary but effective. it was effective and that's an example of cgi being employed well and and it's far enough away where you can't even point out that it's a computer image right which I, i liked a lot i was really struck by bill's way of saying bye to georgie yeah um where you know it's pennywise and you know it's not really georgie that's standing in front of him but it really was his way of saying bye and um you know i got i got i mean i didn't like necessarily shed tears but i did get like kind of worked up during that you know and i and i thought that was an effective way um and the horror that comes after that where you see Pennywise just like exploding out of Georgie's body. Mm-hmm. And then they actually use practical effects there, kind of like um old like Tim Burton style, almost even old Sam Raimi style uh effects. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was really scary, but it was kind of just like, oh my God, like that's do you think miserable to look at? If this was Frank Darabont's it, that would have been Georgie, and Georgie would have been <laughs> and he shoots him, it's like, wait, George, Georgie? Yeah. Georgie? Well that's yeah, yeah, we I kind of love that how long it took for 
for the Georgie to reveal yeah. that it was it and like Bill just to stand there like oh shit did I kill my brother That's like I was that was, for that that moment was kind of a great moment Jared Boss like got you again well, I know man I'll, I, I'll always go back to the when I first saw it I hated that ending so much it like made me mad but yeah. now I can come to appreciate it a little bit but I, I, I kind of like when the brothers appear and they, they try to tell you know it's like that, that great scene at the end of Mortal Kombat when um, Luke King is visited by his brother. Mm, yes. And he's what are you like, wait, are you serious? No, no. I'm, I was like, I, I haven't seen joked. the Mortal Kombat But the ending, it, it does happen, yeah. He, he, like Shang Tsung takes on the persona of his brother. Oh. And it's just like, you know, Lou, remember when you said you always take care of me? Now it's my turn to take care of you. And it's just like so over the top. But I, I remember I, the moment, <laughs> tangent time, I remember the moment I, be, I truly became an adult that was aware of the corruption of the world. And that just because you became an adult didn't mean everything was going to go away. All the problems were going to go away. It was when... um. Mortal Kombat Annihilation beat LA Confidential at the box office. Yeah. It's first I remember reading yeah. that as a child and thinking, it's over. Oh, I was part of the problem because I saw Mortal Kombat Annihilation in the theater. I said, well, opening, opening week. I was also you a were child. too much of a child to go see <laughs> LA Confidential, too. Yeah. I was thinking about more of like the 25 year olds who are like, let's go see the sequel to Mortal Kombat. Well, yeah. I saw a poster for LA Confidential. I was like, oh, sequel to Dick Tracy. Give me a break. <laughs> Fun story. Oh, I, was reading the, like I was reading the oral history of the 1990 it. And, uh, uh, what's her name? Emily Emily Watson. Perkins. Emily Dickinson. Played, I think Emily Perkins, who played Bev and the uh, the child Bev. And oh, the, she became she went on to do Ginger Snaps. Yeah, she right? did Ginger Snaps, yeah. but she tells a story about how they all went inside Dick, all the kids like Jonathan Brandis and all them. They all went inside Dick Tracy together while they were filming, and I thought that was a sweet little story. Oh, man, I wonder if they all got uh, autographs from Jonathan Brandis from like you know being in Sequest or was well, that he was, years later? That he that was later, but he she does talk about how he was he he had more experience than all of them, and he oh, was yeah. more famous than all of them, you, and she had a crush on him. Do you want to feel really old? Next year will be 27 years since that movie came out. So those kids could actually do the old roles oh, now. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, not all of them, unfortunately. Well, six of them. You know. Maybe we could do a piece about that you know. if it is 27 years. Would, would, were, awesome, were you stoked that... Nah, I'll take this back. How relieved were you <laughs> that they did not have any of the older actors like pop up? Like, like, this, like, like Mike's the librarian? Like, yeah. Hey, uh... What's what's going on down there in the basement? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or like like we were joking, <laughs> we were joking last night that they would have had like Tim Curry sitting in the clown room, oh, just like you know making dumb lines. <laughs> like they put I've, on I've some. I started my lawsuit against Fox for dragging him back to do that remake a couple of months yeah. ago. Well, we had also joking that you're still doing the lines from the Rocky Horror Revival, but oh, God. I, I I think that I was so relieved that they didn't have any callbacks. There to was the no movies. cute shit. No, there well, okay. well, there was the, there was the clown, the Pennywise clown. But that's from the such a version. subtle. But that was so subtle. subtle. It's and subtle. It's fine. This isn't a callback. When I said cute shit, the the I think they got a little cute with the um uh wait what's the bo- the new kids on the block bits. Yeah, but it was yeah. good. They got they took it a he took it too it was very far. Very Edgar Wright. It was yeah, it like went a little too far, yeah. but I'll say that otherwise there was no stupid cameos, no. there was no cute shit. I like that the the movie's mostly filled with well, it's filled with pretty much all quote unquote unknown actors. Yeah. Here's something that we've got to discuss right now. Is we talked about in the last episode where do we think um it was going to go the direction of the miniseries or the book? Turtles were mentioned, I think, three yes. different times in this. There's a moment where they're swimming and they go look under the water. What is it? It's a turtle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Georgie's got the turtle toy. And we got mentioned turtle that. wallpaper. Wallpaper. Um, there's also talk in the very beginning when Georgie's running and you see that big green tarp. 
that there's a turtle under there, that there's a, the giant turtle's there. Well, they, they so we, we mentioned that to Andy Musietti, oh. like, and he says, uh, you'll, you'll find that out in the interview. Yeah, that's oh, in the interview. Stick around for the interview, yeah. apparently. I was yeah. not there for that. He so. does talk about it. Uh, but, that, that was a question that we probably asked him that probably not a lot of other people did. No, but but I fans. agree that that is a good thing that we needed to bring up because yeah. I, I won't think bring it up the, earlier on, but I think the spoiler part now. Definitely. Where they're going to go in the second one, and if, I mean, they mentioned today, and I think that variety piece yeah. that they're going to try to keep it as grounded as possible, but I think he's keeping the door open for more like spectral type stuff. He wants, I think he wants to do some crazy shit, but it depends on the budget. Yeah. He doesn't want to do special effects if he can't get a good chunk of money. And so it, it, what, whether I think the vibe I got from my interview and you'll, he'll elaborate is that he'll go deep into the turtle and maybe play with some of that kind of shit. If he has the budget to pull it off. That's a good question right now. So, how much free reign is he going to get if this movie makes four hundred million? Oh my god, he's going to get if this movie makes three hundred million dollars. I, I think that they're smart. They keep the budget very small, mm-hmm. still, but enough to be able to do what he needs to do. Like you know, like if he asks for a certain amount, you think they'll just give it to him? But do you think he would? He wouldn't be the kind of guy to be like, give me two hundred million dollars. <laughs> no, make I don't think he's even need that. I think yeah, you can make that, that movie for fifty million. Yeah. Be no problem. So there you go. I'm I, I, my worry is that you're going to load this with too many stars, which I don't think you need to do. I mean, the best thing about this movie is that there there's no distractions. Even like I was worried about Finn Wolfhard being you know similar to be like, oh look, it's Finn Wolfhard, but he's so transformative from his role in it's Stranger so Things. It's yeah. such a different role that it didn't even we bother me. We make a me. lot of jokes about Finn Wolfhard, mostly just because of the media that surrounds him these days and the, and the Instagram. Well, we are always and, writing stories about him on. Sales, we are. So yeah, we we're only propping him up even more. But I yeah. think it says a lot. He, <laughs> he was blew easily, us off. Uh, he was for this <laughs> interview <laughs> request. <laughs> <and> just trying, <laughs> he really did. Little hothead. He um. He's MVP of this movie in terms of comedy alone. Good God, he's the most famous kid in the movie oh yeah probably the most famous actor in the movie when you think about it no he is and he would back off and let what's the actor play he would let Jaden Lieber her, her the guy who plays Ben Denbro yeah I'll probably butcher his name don't have such a complicated name when you, you, you put your stage <laughs> names together go the route of like you know Michael Fox or something Michael um, Fox Michael Fox <laughs> Not but even um, he he stole the scenes when he needed to but he backed off and let you know p- the other people do their thing when they needed to I like that a lot Kudos for him. That's that's something that a young kid would necessarily think to do. But it was great. I do hope that some of our casting. Maybe I don't think they go to too many stars, but uh, man, get Bill Hader for that role. He'd be so perfect. Yeah, it's funny because I think Finn Wolfhard actually said that he wanted Bill Hader, which was our our pick on that uh, on that. uh, You know that he got it from us. Oh, I'm sure he probably was reading it. He's like, who? Hey, who are these cool kids that have the Losers Club podcast? (laughs) And like, I wish I could be on their podcast, but my agent says I'm too busy. Yeah, (laughs) Hollywood should just hire us. I don't know what the big deal is. Who cares? Well, there's it's got a bunch of Hollywood hacks. Yeah, well, we also said that McConaughey should have been the man in black. And he's the worst part of that movie. So we're not. Um, We're not. uh, We'll see how much of that had to do with Akiva, though, and uh, how much had to do with uh, Akiva Moldsman. Yeah. All right, let's cast it right now. No, we've already done that. We've already done that. We've already done that. We don't need to. I looking ahead. Um, I would love it if Morgan Freeman played Bill. Well, I (laughs) Morgan Freeman played Bill. This totally changed race for no reason. It's still um, like Bill Hader. Like, yeah. Bill, remember when you we were like younger, ch- riding our bikes? Channing Tatum playing like that, Mike. Bill. Channing Tatum playing Mike Hanlon. Um, Ch- and his Ch- Logan Ch- Lucky Channing? character. Um, but I... I, <laughs> I do remember Chloe that. Chloe Grace Moretz's adult bev. Like, <laughs> somebody who's like 22 years yeah, old. <laughs> my, um, my only concern is that this is going to have to take place in modern times. 
Mm-hmm. And horror and modern times don't mix too well anymore. Cell phones. Yeah. They do. That cell phones, was the, the great internet, thing about bringing Wi Fi. The 90 was still before cell phones. Those kids were still lost. They yeah. were lost, you know? I mean, look, you have that, that entire sequence that's in the sequel with the hotel. A cell phone def- destroys all of that. Well, I think that that's a very easy out. Would you like to hear it? <clears throat> okay. <laughs> so they, they, they're at the Chinese restaurant, right? And they open up those fortune cookies and, oh my God, there's an eyeball in there. Somebody call the cops. Somebody call the cops. Somebody call the cops. They pick up their phone and they say, it's done something to the cell phone service. <laughs> it could be. No, but that's very true. They probably could. It's like no bars on no. the screen. It's like, what's happening? The end. But you know, they're Problem probably going to have like a scene where they're like, you know, um, Jessica Chastain is going to be playing Bev. She's going to be in a, a loner room. That whole like, you know, trying to call Bill or something. on the, the, It's going to be like texting. And then the wife of Bill is going to see the texts. Oh, and it's going to be all these, you know. Like, oh, I give you the, uh, the house number. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I have a friend who's a filmmaker and I asked him for a film treatment once because um, I was going to write one. I was like, hey, can I get a sample? And he actually reached out to, he goes, oh, I actually don't do treatments because he writes and directs all of his stuff so he doesn't have to make them. Yeah. So he like reached out to a friend and it ended up being a friend of the guys who made Your Next, like Adam Wingard and all them. Uh-huh. And so I, he sent me like their treatment and their treatment also included all these notes, like correspondence between them because it was like a rough draft and they just sent it to me and they were literally talking about um the cell phone question and they were talking about how adam wingard and simon barrett like had to consider the cell phone issue in your next like they were talking about that in it the takes notes. place in modern times i know so, and it's like yeah. it's i think that's something every horror filmmaker has to deal with is yeah, like Ty how West do we does. deal yeah, yeah how do we deal with cell phones you know a couple of years ago um i i did like a couple of drafts of a halloween sequel and it was set in the snow and i had addressed the same issue but the thing is, during strong snowstorms, cellular service usually does go down mm-hmm. because the towers are affected. So yeah. there would be an out, there's an out there. So maybe they just set it in the snow. Hey, don't you wish that we just lived in a time where we didn't have to worry about, you know, be safeguarded by our cell phones? Don't you miss Walkmans? Yeah. You know, just walking around on your bicycle. I don't know about you guys, but I love my my smartphone. I can call people, I can browse the internet, and I can even read ebooks on unless, my phone. Unless it possesses your yeah. phone, you can't make any calls. Well, I love, I love, 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 love my cell phone for all the pornography that I can oh, get here all it is the time. Again. I need it. He's my back. crippling addiction. I need it. I love my smartphone because yeah. I can walk down the street while reading it and bump into people, <laughs> and it really pisses them off. Yeah. I like to watch people um, run right into signs when they're reading, like just head first into like a stop sign. And then when, when they hit it, it's like a monkey's episode, and it goes like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're getting loopy. Um, I, uh, so let's let's let's. Uh, is there anything else to wrap up here in the spoiler section before we move on to our interview I've, with Andy Muschietti? I will always be curious to see what Carrie Fukunaga would have done with this movie. Yeah. Um, obviously, he had a big hand in writing the script, so it's a whole different story when you've got a writer and a director as one and the same. I think what Muschietti was able to do is admirable, considering the fact that he came in with a completed script for the most part at least a few completed drafts, a lot of which were used for this adaptation. But that will, for me, always be, the, especially if Fukunaga goes on to do great things, I'll always wonder, what, what if Kerry Fukunaga had done it? You know? <laughs> I wonder if he'll work on the script for the sequel at all. He comes back for the sequel. He plays <laughs> Machete. Oh, my God. They need that Fukunaga feel. That's right, yeah. FF. Uh, uh, Mike, anything else to add? 
No, I'm good. Yeah, I think I think I think we've covered it pretty uh, pretty ex- extensively. And obviously, when we do our episode on the book, it we'll probably all be revisiting, and it'll probably be a different uh, panel oh, yeah. to yeah. discuss it. But uh, we'll you know have some more thoughts on the Definitely. film, especially after reading the book. So uh, thanks so much for listening, guys, and stay tuned because we have a really fun, illuminating interview with Andy and Barbara Muschietti. Uh, they share some really cool stuff about it. And more so, we kind of really focused our interview just on Stephen King himself, us being a Stephen King podcast. So we really wanted to hear what, you know, Andy's thoughts were on King in general and when he got into him and things like that. So and he shares some really cool stories, some really great stuff, especially about uh, his favorite book, which also aligns with me and Mike's and maybe Justin's. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it. But... Oh, that's not my favorite book. Oh, OK. One of his well, favorite it's a great books. Book. Yes. Uh, well, not of all time, but of King. But anyways, you'll hear it when you listen to it, and it's about to start right now. Hey, Andy. Hey, how's it going? Uh, This is uh, Randall Colburn. I'm a co-host of the Losers Club podcast and writer with Consequence of Sound. And I'm here with Michael, who is the uh, president of Consequence of Sound and a fellow co-host. Hi, how you doing? We know you guys don't have a lot of time, so we'd love to actually just start. Like, what was your first experience with Stephen King, both of you? Like, Andy, you were around, like, 13 years old when it was published. Like, when were you reading King at that age? Yeah, I was reading King, uh, actually, when I was 13, I read uh, Pet Cemetery. Oh, yeah, that's, like, our favorite. That's my, fa- that's my favorite one. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, well, that's my favorite, too, and it just blew my mind away. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's where it all started for me. And oh. then I got like very uh, uh, attached to short, his short stories. Yeah. I read uh, Skeleton, Skeleton Crew, uh, Night Shift. Uh, I, read, I read a couple of Batman <laughs> uh, <laughs> books, like Dinner. Yeah, I uh, love Dinner. Uh, and then came it. Yeah. And so, Barbara, how about, Barbara, how about you? Did, were you a King fan growing up? I was a huge King fan um, before even reading him, um, and it, it stems from a, li- a little before I, I got access to his books, and it was through Salem's Lot that oh, yeah. just basically did my head in at, I think I must have been nine or ten, um, and, and there's still some of the images, like, you know, the guy coming off, you know, off the black cloth yeah. through the kitchen floor in the middle of a family dinner, or of course, the child flying towards the window that are images that will remain in my top 10 horror moments for, for the rest of, of my life. Yeah. Were you guys always kind of dreaming of working on a King project? I know we saw that you were interested in maybe making the jaunt into a film. And I know that there's talk about Pet Cemetery. Are these ideas you've been, you know, thinking on for a long time? Well, for me, you know, Stephen King was such a, a big influence growing up. Uh, and and it, it reached, I think it reached beyond uh, literary world. You know, it's like I learned telling, story, telling stories from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so much, probably as much or more than, than the, the movie, the movie experience is I had growing up. Because, you know, I, we, we were already attached to horror from an early age, you know, six or seven years, we were like watching horror movies. Um, 
few years later, I started uh, reading Stephen King and, and a world uh, that is that, uh, more layered in the genre, like open up. Um, and that's when you, you know, start uh, appreciating the value of, of characters and story and, uh, and, and, and depth. And, you know, because Stephen King loves so much character and, and he, he appreciates the value of connecting emotionally with, with the answers or the reader, whether it's, you know, a drama or it's a horror movie. So, yeah, so I, uh, answering to your question, uh, yeah, I, like, uh, Stephen King, in my case, is part of my upbringing as a, as a storyteller. Not only about like adapting his work, but also about like you know my learning experience of how to tell stories. I will say though that I remember Andy having a visceral reaction um, the first time he read that someone that was not him was doing Pet Cemetery in the movie. <laughs> uh, he, he actually wrote a you know, a scold, a, a, a scathing letter to, to a magazine about it. Um, I don't remember I what magazine was, it was. It was Angoria, and it was, I was like 15, I think, and it was, uh, that, that's uh, Mary Lambert. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, thing. And, you know, I, it, at that age, I, it, it just, it was so weird to me that uh, the music video director yeah. would, that cemetery, it didn't make sense to me. And so, like, how do you look back on the film now, on Pet Cemetery? Well, when I saw it, I was uh, I wasn't too impressed <laughs> because I loved, you know, I loved the the, the, the book so much, and I was so I was so so blown away by it. And and there were there were you know the limitations of the movie. I cannot. Uh, mimic the spirit in, in full form and uh, I don't know it was so ingrained in, in me like that, that, that things that you can't uh, put in the movie like but they, they blew my mind I remember when after Gate dies yeah uh, uh, there's this full I don't know it's like probably five pages of describing uh, the life of Gage uh, growing up after that and he, you know, he grew up to be like a sports, like a football player, and he was like very popular, and he was in the swing team, and he was like everybody loved him. But then, like on the on the on page five, he says, "But none of that was true." Yeah, uh, Gage was dead. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a heartbreaking. I mean, the whole book is so <laughs> depressing. <laughs> like, it, it, it's a gut so, check. Yeah, so, so when I saw the movie, I thought it was it was well made. I I, I actually like uh, appreciated and, and and sort of realized that it, you know I shouldn't have like bitched about it because I was <laughs> I, I enjoy the movie and the, the atmosphere is good, the music is great, uh, the performances are pretty good. Uh, it would take a couple of actors, um, and <laughs> but yeah, I mean it was. It was not as good as the book, of course. Yeah. Well, for for it, it must have been interesting to set the film pretty much around the time that, I mean, that you were kind of discovering King as a kid. I mean, you set it in 1988, 1989, which is right around the time that it was first published. You were around, you know, 13, 15. Growing up during that time, uh, did that 
help your direction when you're working with the with the kids? Well, it was a it was a journey back to to, the, to those years, you know, because I I'm I'm in my forties now. Uh, I don't have kids, so I don't have contact with with that generation uh, uh, every day. And and like my, my friends' kids are, are are younger, so it was like you know suddenly like rediscovering a world that has had has so many similarities. Uh, of my own experience, but on the other hand, like like new, like a lot of nuances that just come from this generation. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was an it was like such a I got became, became so curious about about them and, and living together with this group of kids uh, was really was really interesting. We were so taken with the children in the movie; they were probably our favorite part. We felt like everyone was. Perfectly cast, just so charming. Uh, the friendship was so believable. How did you like? What kind of went into finding like the perfect losers club? Well, I wanted to uh, find kids that were not only like this, like match the, the physical description, or or they have like of course talent. But I always wanted. I, I also wanted to. To find performers that had the characters inside, so they shared the DNA with, with them. Yeah, because you know some of the some of the characters of the loser stuff are very very particular and very specific. And for me, it was you can't you can't be you know you can't uh, play Richie Tozier if you're if you if you're not Richie Tozier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, it was so lovely. For me, that was very important. That was probably the character that I said, "Man, I have to find Richie Dozier." Yeah. Like, in real life. Yeah, he and, sets the tone. And along, along, yeah, and along came uh, Finn, and I immediately realized that this kid has like you know a burning uh, need inside to express himself and 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 and, and be funny, and uh, and I said when I saw him, I said, "That's Finn." Which is funny because he's kind of like a Bill on Stranger Things. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's more like Bill on Stranger Things, and and so it was it was, <laughs> it was great. I <laughs> I didn't know about Stranger Things. You know, we started production, and Stranger Things came came out in the middle of a shoot, and I didn't want to see Stranger Things because like people were already talking about similarities and stuff, and and yeah, it's very different characters. Uh, Mike. Uh, character that he plays in Stranger Things. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't judge. You 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 cannot judge uh, Finn uh, as Richie Dozier by by watching Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Right. So I felt like one of the characters that really, um, for me, had evolved from both the book and the 1990 miniseries in really interesting ways that I think corresponded with the time a lot was the treatment of Beverly. Um, I love the way that she was rendered here. I felt like there was a real freshness to that character. And um, so how much of that was in the script and how much of that was something you worked with with the actress? Uh, it was, you know, half of it was in the script and the other half was came from 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 you know de- developing the character uh, with her and and building the character, uh, a lot of things came like the intimacy of the character just happened in the, the shoot. Um, you know, the, I wanted to I wanted to transmit that loneliness 
she seemed the most like an adult and I think it's because she sort of had to live through the hell and that the other ones you know they didn't even they haven't even even like encountered that kind of pain in their life before so she she almost functioned both as a friend but also as sort of like a mentor a mentor in some ways to some of the kids was that an intentional choice yeah for sure yeah that's that's gonna be uh, you know what I found in the the primal screenplay was was not didn't focus uh, on that too much. Uh, I wanted to 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 bring that you know that that uh, that quality of, of of leadership that was always given to um, to Bill in yeah. a way in the book, uh, and it came it comes from up in a different angle because when 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 uh, when Beverly uh, erupts into the group. Suddenly, it's, it's sort of a, of a guiding light because she's audacious, you know. Yeah. And even though she like a terrible uh, nightmare at home, she she sort of, 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 of you know she's uh, she has she has guts and she 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 uh, the scene where she jumps into the into the quarry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit illustrative of that thing because she's doing something that nobody has the balls to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, did you did you yeah. feel that there was any pressure um, taking over a pre-existing script when you would come on? Um, and would you have, or would you have rather? Do you think you would have rather have no, started no, from no. scratch or? No, because there was there were there were things in the, in the existing script that were good. Yeah. And I no, I thought yeah, this is worth keeping. Uh, but immediately when I read the script, the, like the, the ideas and, and thoughts. Making naturally to me because it's it's easy when you have like you know someone wrote uh, his his version of the story and and, and he put it together with your idea and it's like oh I, I would do this different uh, I would dig deeper into that to this uh, talking about Beverly for instance the whole uh, taking control uh, sequence where she you know she basically cuts her hair yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like sort of an act of, of not rebellion, but you know, taking control. Because uh, she's turning into a woman. Uh, uh, his father is sort of expresses that uh, that, that weird creepiness by fixating on, on her hair. Yeah. So that was that was the thing like I created. I you know she goes to the bathroom and cuts her hair, and, and the hair goes into the sink, and and the the hair for her is a symbol of of, of of something horrifying, mm-hmm. and it comes back as a as a as an incarnation of, of the people on the on the sinks. Yeah, not in the script, in the in the book. In the book, it's just blood that comes up. Yeah. 
So you um so you said that uh, one of the things you responded to about King when you were young was the sense of you know uh, humanity, uh, the emotion, the relationships between the characters. Would you say that that's something that you really focused on and brought specifically to the vision that uh, like when you took over the project? Because I felt like there was a really strong emotional component um, and a really strong sense of family that really developed between those kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, 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 again, I, I learned like storytelling from Stephen King, like roughly, uh, and uh, and I, I, it's, for me, it's, it doesn't matter if you're like telling a horror story. You have to uh, you have to make uh, uh, people engage emotionally with the character, care for it them was... before you you even attempt to put them in, in danger. You know, mm-hmm. for, for, so for me, it was it was very important, and I I, I really deepened that that aspect of the of the story or tried at least yeah what I what I will say though is and, and I, I I have to clarify this a little bit is that when you know when uh, we were invited to board the project um, you know we we were given one of the drafts that was made before and you know we were told um, guys you take it from where you want, as in, if you want to start from scratch, you can. So, you know, the, the pressure to have to work with an existing script was not really there, and and, and hence it, it was uh, it was very helpful. Um, but you know, this movie is, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll speak for my brother, but I think it's it's such a personal uh, view of it. For him, mm-hmm. um, that the you know the additions to to the script and the modifications came very organically because they're just a result of, of his experience as a fourteen year old reading the book. Yeah, absolutely, and it comes across that in, in the movie. That was that's really what it connected with me was just that this does come from some personal place, and it for me it, it seemed like that nature of the film was far more important than even the scares. Um, it was just almost as if the scares were like a ticket that, that to get people in or the hook to get people in, but you're really like sinking your teeth into something that's a lot greater, you know, a more existential threat of, you know, I'm getting older, I'm a kid, you know, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm taking on adulthood and yeah, that loss of innocence. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just really love that. And I guess what I, I guess the big question now though, is along those lines of, of just in terms of even starting from scratch or just planning, the sequel because <laughs> I imagine the planning for this has got to have already started or for the follow-up right yeah yeah we started a uh, story and uh, you know for me it's, it's it's as important it's the second half for me it's not a second part yeah yeah. it's like a, a complete the story and there's, there's something about like telling the, the second story that has to do with the point of view of, of an adult yeah also but that is a, it, it sort of mirrors my experience reading book, uh, you know, twenty five years later, mm-hmm. uh, that you really like like discover new things about about the book because when when you read that fourteen, you don't know what being an adult feels like. Yeah. Uh, and so this time over, like you know, reading the book twenty five years later, it, it you you understand certain things uh, that you couldn't grasp at the uh, first time. And mainly that it's like you know the story talks about like the, the magic of childhood and 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 also the the, the end of childhood. Mm-hmm. You know? 
So it's something that disappears when you turn into a teenager and then an adult. Uh, and when you're 14, you don't really understand that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that world of magic and, and imagination and belief in things that, that don't exist. How... Um, how far along are you in the script? Are you are you done with it, or are you ready? To, you no, know? no, no. Oh no, not done. Talking story. I want I, I want to I want to make it uh, as interesting as possible. Uh, and and for me, I was always you know I was always more attached to the to the to the Losers Club uh, story. Yeah, when they were kids than the adults somehow. So I really want to, to bring that, you know, emotional engagement. If we, if people like this movie and, and they engage with the characters, I want, I really want to bring them to the second, to the second half and and, and reestablish that that dialogue between the two timelines. Yeah, and sort of the, I think the, you know, the guiding thread between those timelines is Pennywise himself. Uh, Bill Skarsgård said that the second film uh, is going to dive a little bit more into Pennywise's origins. Can you speak to that at all? Conceptually, it's 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 things that we mentioned with Bill and I, I. I I'm on board totally because uh, this you know first part is great because you know, it, it sort of mirrors the, the perspective of the book where everything we know about Pennywise is roughly from the perspective of, of the losers and it's uh, you know everything we know about him is really speculative and sort of shrouded in certainty. Uh, and I wanted to keep that spirit. Uh, the second part is different because I think that you know uh, it would be cool to 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 expand our understanding of the monster a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. and so you you uh... even, even though like it's quite cryptic, you know, in the in the book, we never get to understand exactly what Benihana it is. And yeah, that's one of the things of the monster. You know? Yeah, I mean, one of the most haunting parts of it for me was always when Richie and Mike have that uh, spirit vision and see sort of the fire coming down from the sky that sort of represents it. That was always such a, a, a mystical, ambiguous, horrifying moment for me. Oh, yeah. Did you, I mean, I saw little hints of like the turtle in the first one and with the, the Lego and then a thing on the wall. Was that kind of foreshadowing a little bit there? <laughs> uh, I didn't want you to overlook presence of the mm-hmm. as you know, as a force of good. But I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't want to enter the the, the the world of the other side too much because I, I I didn't want to totally mess up with with the with the with the journey of the, of the you know the journey of of, of, of these characters. Uh, so introducing uh, the the world of a macroverse and the turtle in the first movie for me was uh, going too far. Yeah. Um, and and on the, on the production side, it was like also sort of prohibitive because we were like, you know, had to abide by by budget and and trying to portray or to make up some you know portrait of, of that other side of the macroverse or the turtle would like fuck up our you know our budget. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> it would suck off like half of the of the VFX uh, budget. Yeah. So for conceptual reasons and technical reasons. Uh, uh, I, I didn't want to do it. 
Right. But I don't, I'm not ruling it out for the second one. Oh, yeah. very cool. And just uh, just to our last question, just to wrap things up, um, you, we talked earlier about Pet Cemetery a little bit and about you know your affection for Skeleton Crew. Um, do you have any interest, any plans to pursue other King projects, like say Pet Cemetery? Well, we, we've been developing uh, the Jaunt, yeah, which is uh, a short story from, from Skeleton Crew, which is uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, short stories of him, and. Uh, yeah, and we've been developing that into a feature uh, length story, and uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's like I don't know if you remember the story, but it's 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 very small. It takes place in a you know in a day or something or so. Yeah. So it's uh, for us. It's you know these years we're trying to crack, figure out what the what the story. Is. Um, yeah, there's so much mythology there. Yeah. Yeah, all the elements are there for sure. Um, but of course, you know, we want to make a engaging uh, movie, and that took us some time, but it's it's, it's on its way. <laughs> I can't wait. That's that's and uh, and uh, you know, Pet Cemetery. I think it's 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 always there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it is one of our favorite books. Uh, not only. Uh, by Stephen King, but one of our favorite books, and you know, if there's ever a way to honor it in, in full force, we'd love to do it. Yeah. Well, I would love to have you do it because I absolutely loved it. Um, one of my favorite things about this film is that it really did feel like I was just watching a Stephen King book come to life. It, the first time I felt that way since I feel like even like Frank Darabont was earlier, just touched those those movies back twenty years ago, and I. It, it, I don't know that just really connected well with me, and I and I absolutely would love it if you did just did more. <laughs> it, it really would. I, I just think that you capture you have that eye for for what makes King tick. And um, oh my gosh, if you started with Pet Cemetery, I'd be absolutely just, <laughs> just totally overjoyed. Well, I think there's, a, there's a line. There's a line that you can see in movies that were adapted from his work, and I think it has to do with the love of of, of, of the original work. Mm-hmm. You know, some some. Some movies or TV, or TV movies were more probably uh, more ex- ex- exploitative in a way. Yeah, and and you can see it. You can see it when there's a love for the for the story. Yeah, there's um, people who see Stephen King as a dollar sign, and there's people who see him as a great storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for chatting with us, Andy uh, and Barbara. This has been an amazing conversation, and uh, congratulations on it, and good luck. It looks like, you know, things are looking bright and sunny for it, so. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. I hope you can, you some, you can make out some, some of, this, of this conversation. Oh, oh no, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Awesome. Absolutely. Okay, Have bye-bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. Well, that's it. Thanks. So- <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Keep going. That was great. Okay. Uh, well, th- thanks for listening, guys. Uh, that was our interview with Andy Muschietti and Barbara Muschietti. And we thank you so much for listening. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, what are you waiting for? Go mm. do it now. We need your reviews and we long for them. They are our only sense of self-worth that we have in this world. <laughs> so please leave us a review, like us on Facebook, and uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And in the meantime, long days and pleasant nights, friends. I got some hot friends, but can I
Consequence Podcast Network.